0: Boy, I a long time ago
1: shows. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Special report with film is lit. This month I dropped a commentary episode on Katsushiro Otomo's Zakira, guest-starring Laura Sealing and Danny Gaylord from the Film Is Lit podcast, and their friend and self-appointed manga enthusiast Ryan Burns. We had so much fun doing that, we decided to do this special report in which we wander through discussions of psychology and Akira, race and ghost in the shell, misogyny and blue is the warmest color, and we end by pondering... What is our Rushmore of film is lit? The more and more I think about it, it's, I think it's Tetsuo's story, really, and Canada is the one who gets all the, all the attention, and Akira is the, sort of the, the elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about. So we were talking before about live action. Laura, I have to give you an enormous amount of credit for keeping the podcast on track. There are many times where you were diving in, starting with the... Yeah, and that's what I like about this scene.
2: Oh, nice, uh, And it nice. Was
1: very clear that the tangent was chased. And, <laughs> and we... Oh, yes, that's right. We're doing a commentary. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Oh,
2: of course.
1: But in reference to your – we were talking about live action for a while. Wouldn't it be cool to have a live action of X, Y, and Z, including Akira? And, yes, the live action found funding in 2019. They went into pre-production, and Leonardo DiCaprio uh, licensed the product uh, personally, and he was the one who secured funding. And he gave the screenplay uh, to someone I had never heard of before – and then it was assigned to Taika Waititi as director. Huh,
2: okay. Very cool.
1: So they were supposed to start shooting. Guess when? Oh,
2: 2019. 20. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: they were, well, this, that's, when, that's when the funding was approved. They were supposed to start shooting principal photography in the summer of 20. Okay. And as far <laughs> as I know, it's dead. Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: Really? So, yeah. Interesting. And DiCaprio was not supposed to star in it. He was not supposed to be in the film.
2: Well that that would make sense. Yeah, he's
4: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what Tycho Titi was saying he wasn't going to whitewash and or you know, or anything like that. He was gonna stick purely with um Asian actors.
2: Yeah, I would say that's probably the right call. All
1: right. So now that we've brought up the whitewashing situation, let's go ahead and jump right into Ghost and Michelle. Heck yeah. Ryan, I wanna start with you. I wanna hear all of your thoughts on Miss Johansson and Ghost in the Shell? That's tough. Uh, you know, I think
0: there's two ways to look at it. There's the obvious response of, you know, if you watch the anime and you understand the characters, um, who they're supposed to be, it, it, it's a big question mark as to why, you know, why would you... Uh, you know, pick her, why wouldn't you stick with something uh, or a casting that is going to represent the characters um, in a way that's, that's uh, a little more pure, I think, to the form. Um, having said that, as an action movie, it's, I think it's enjoyable. Um, it departs enough from the original uh, i haven't read the manga but i've seen the original film as well as i think it's standalone complex i think the the additional installments several times i love loved ghost in the shell i think it's uh a deeply existential philosophical film and it, it asks a lot of very good questions that are uh becoming more relevant um you know as we go through time, especially with, you know, where we're at as a world today. But, you know, I I appreciated the live action remake. I thought that they hit on, um, you know, a lot of the things that made the film, the original animated film, um, attractive from an action standpoint. I don't agree with the casting. I, I don't think that that was a good move. I think it was a big detriment to the reception of the film overall. Um, you know, I think she did a a great job for the role that, you know, she was presented with, uh, you know, in the situation that she was in, but, um, you know, I, I, I think that it should be redone in a, in a better way, if that, if that makes any sense. Um, I'm not trying to give a vague answer of whether, you know, I loved or hated you know, the remake, I think it was it was fine, but I think that they kind of fumbled it uh, in, in several different ways um, that didn't really do. They kind of did a disservice to the original, um, uh, the original story and the the original uh, film. So um, and I, I don't know.
1: Do you agree or disagree? Uh, I want to hear Laura's take first.
2: I, I've never seen that movie. Oh, my God. I didn't get to God. watch it. I'm so sorry.
1: You had one job.
4: I'm sorry. I wonder if I look away from the mic, he won't ask me if (laughs) I've seen it either. Ryan has recommended it, uh, the original um, film, anime film, to me, but I, it's on our watch list, and we want to do it for our podcast, but it hasn't happened yet. And I'm a big uh, letterboxed uh, guy, and that, the Ghost in the Shell on letterboxed was ravaged by users and that's kind of pushed farther down the watch list hasn't been a huge uh, priority um, but we're gonna get to it soon I I I what when it came out I was heavily invested in the story and and reading about the controversy and the reception and I yeah I think Scarlett Johansson is supremely talented actress Um, how she handled the controversy in the press. I don't think she also handled it, handled it as elegantly as she could have. She kind of gave like a, well, you know, anyone can play anyone type of uh, response and which further hurt the movie. And it it doesn't seem to have a huge um, cultural impact uh, because of that. As Ryan was saying, that it, it really hindered, uh, the reception so yeah i i we're definitely going to get around to the anime soon um but at this time we have no comment on <laughs> the live action movie can i add something i just I, you know I, I knew that there was a point
0: i was forgetting and i think it actually is very fair to bring this up in light of
5: kind of my critique a minute ago but so the role of so Kusanagi, who
0: also is known as the Major, is who Johansson plays, and she's a basically a brain, a human brain inside this robotic body that's built and designed and provided by the government. You kind of sign a waiver to be, you know, this 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 program that she's working for. You sign you sign away basically all your rights, and they, you know, the government kind of takes you know control and puts you in this this body. And there's, there's a big, um, you know, theme of, you know, human meets machine. Um, now the one point arguing for Johansson is that, you know, as I was reading through this, just out of curiosity, the, the major is presented as a very androgynous figure, um, in the film. She's, she's obviously female, um, obviously a woman, but, uh, the way that they animate her and depict her is th- there's sometimes questions as to whether she's American or Japanese or what her, you know, ethnic background is. And, and, and she, it, it's kind of a gray area because she's, she's a, she's a human brain operating within a robotic body. And then it just leaves a gray area. And I think that might've lent um argument towards casting um someone that necessarily wasn't of the supposed you know ethnic background that that would have been presumed so um i guess that was a, that was just an interesting point that i read a while ago that i feel is 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 fair to kind of you know provide on the other end of the argument spectrum maybe so i just wanted to throw that in there
1: oh that's good there's there's a lot to unpack with that particular film Um, she got into trouble because uh, exactly what she said anybody can play any role and there's no there was no nuance led into the interview is is the problem exactly Matt Damon caught a shitload for saying basically I wish we didn't know uh, people's sexuality because you have gay actors playing straight men and straight men playing gay actors and you know, it works better if you're just unfamiliar with what sexuality somebody is. Everyone knows that Rupert Everett is gray, is gay. He's been playing straight actors most of his life. And uh, I don't think that he's, I mean, he came out of the closet like when he was a teenager or something. So uh, I understand what Damon was saying. Right. But everyone else just wants to drop nuance to the floor and they just want to grab a soundbite and they want everything to make, to, uh, to be controversial, you know. And that makes everything else that Damon says after the fact suspect. So I went to see the last duel a couple of weeks ago. Oh, we okay. want to see that! Yeah, I, can't yeah. Wait to see that. I haven't seen it yet. An absolutely amazing film, and it's based on historical evidence. And It's based on actual something that happened in France and about a thousand years ago, which I was unfamiliar with. I'm not a medieval historian, <sighs> and uh, but it's also based on Roshima. So within <sighs> Within the first 35 minutes, my son and I just instantly, oh, this is Roshma. And I didn't know that it was real until I left. Then I heard a podcast where Damon went on to uh, Mark Marin nice. and talked about The Last Duel and said that he and Ben wrote the script, again, something I didn't know. And then they wrote the, so they wrote the first part, which was um, Ben's story, or, or rather Matt's story. Then they wrote the second part, which is Adam Driver's story. Then the third part, which is the, the wife story, and they they were not satisfied with how the wife story was turning out. So they went and hired the best screenwriter they thought who was female to write the third part of the script for him, for them because they just didn't have that confidence in themselves. Um, I've read unbelievable reviews that say, you know, the only reason why Matt Damon did this is to make up for all this shit that he said two years ago. Mm. Interesting, you know. And um, I, I hate Bill Maher, but occasionally little, little nuggets come out of Bill Maher that you think, well, you know, you're an asshole, but occasionally <laughs> you say things that, that ring true. And yeah. one of the things that he said, uh, like Justin Timberlake apologized uh, to the world for the way he treated uh, Britney Spears when they were fucking teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> you, you know, like, like we come out of the womb perfect. I've said shit. As a teenager, that I wouldn't say today in the corner of my room with the lights <laughs> turned off, mm-hmm. with anybody within a square mile of. I grew up in Texas, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I can't tell you the mou- amount of shit that I used to thought was ex- acceptable, and and because I don't think that is acceptable now doesn't mean I'm woke. Just just means that I've I've changed my thinking, and hopefully for the better. Hopefully that happens when you get older. Matt Damon's older than me. I think that the man can grow, mm-hmm. and. I hope that Ms. Johansson can too. Getting back to Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> is they, specifically, they specifically said in the film, um, this goes back to your point, Ryan, where she is a ghost placed into a shell. And what is the nature of that ghost? And what does it mean to be inside this shell? That was very much what the manga was trying to explore. You're a tool. Whose tool? What for? What purpose? And who are you ultimately serving? And does the soul have any type of ownership over the shell? Well, we may have. There they are. And they specifically styled Ms. Johansson's eyebrows to look Japanese. Which the first time I, I saw it on screen, I thought, oh, shit, that's not good. Uh, Sean Connery
3: yeah. <laughs>
1: had amazing prosthesis put onto his face for the Bond film, um, you, only twice, you Only Live Twice, where he was supposed to look more Japanese. That has not aged well. Now. No. <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> but if you think about it in terms of this is her shell, and they're in Japan, wouldn't the shell? Isn't the shell supposed to look Japanese? Mm. That would make sense, right? What doesn't make sense is the fact that she's just so pale white. They could have they could have done something about that. But if you look at the manga, the the book, she's pretty white in the book, mm-hmm. you know, and not that much darker in in the anime. the The one thing that confuses all of it is the fact that I think two-thirds through the movie, she mentions that she's a refugee. Hmm. So she's admitting that she's not Japanese at all. Her ghost is not Japanese. And here she is being placed into this Japanese shell. I think if they hit that hammer any harder, or if they hit that nail any harder, it would have looked really like they were trying very hard to convince you that there is no race issue here. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a nuance there that we can be comfortable with. But ultimately, I think the setting is inappropriate. If you want to remake Ghost in a Shell with an American Hollywood actress, which is the reason why you want to do it is so that you can get butts in seats, pay the tickets. We all know this. Mm -hmm. They should not have said it in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. They should have said it in London or in New York. Somewhere where her appearance would fit the locale, that might have been another argument. Instead of whitewashing one character, you're whitewashing the entire movie. But we do that shit all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Spike Lee remade uh, Old Boy, famous Japanese film, and nobody said anything about it. Right, replaced yeah. a Japanese actor with Josh Brolin. You yeah. know, and, and to say, well, you can do that because Spike Lee's black, like whoa, 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 whoa. You know, then you get into that argument, why mm-hmm. is it acceptable for certain directors to do things and other directors not? Race in today's mm-hmm. society is just so it's such a, a labyrinth
3: mm-hmm.
1: to go around. And at the end of the film, and this is this is what gets me about the entire experience. I took my son, we went to Star Cinema Grill. I fucking love that film. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. It's, it's really close to the manga. There are shots right out of uh, the film, the anime, and there are shots right out of the book. It doesn't follow the exact same plot, so you're not bored with it. And I think uh, how they handled her sexuality, like Ryan was talking about, was appropriate. There are people that very obviously want to see Scarlett Johansson as the major, because in, in the manga several times, it appears that she's nude and they were playing off of that in the trailers. They were playing off of that in the posters Mm -hmm. and they were playing off of that in, in the film, but that's okay. Like the race thing is that's not okay, but to, exploit the female body on screen for two hours. That's, that's fine. Or to do that in an, in an anime, that's okay to do that in a graphic novel. That's okay. Mm -hmm. So really we're choosing which arguments we care about as cinema goers. Mm -hmm. So that's another problem I have with the criticism of the film, but as a narrative, I think that it works. And the reason that it works is despite all the race issues and despite all the sex issues, they really did try to stick to the story as much as possible. And that's why I enjoyed it. I, you know, I didn't go to see Ghost and Shell because I thought it would be different. I went because I thought it would be the same. Interesting. And it was 80% the same.
3: Yeah. Um.
1: There were other things going on in the periphery which were unnecessary. You know, her partner has blonde hair. And he's got blonde hair in the anime. And he's got blonde hair in the manga. Yep. So how is that whitewashing? Right. I mean, find mm-hmm. a Japanese guy with blonde hair, you know. Yeah.
0: Well in Bato's and Bato's you know, character, you know, even in the anime, it his prosthetics and his technological kind of implants, his tech implants are such that um you know, it 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 shields or leaves to question, you know, where he came from or, or who he who he really is. I mean it's it's uh it's very interesting that's a great point. I mean he does have like this cool silk stockings flat top that's blonde and and uh the other thing is that there's I mean there's there's I think that there's actually a fair amount of diversity um in the anime that maybe wasn't expected when I first saw it a long time ago that I wasn't really aware of until recently but um I mean that's a good point. Yeah, Bato is is his uh his appearance is is you know definitely um, asking that question uh, I think of the viewer of like because we don't really have a background much of his background from from the anime at least and you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I don't remember it but and I haven't read the manga, but um, you know origin is a big point um, where we came from. Uh, You know, who we are, how do we know who we are, how do we know what we are is a big question that this story asks. And I think it's interesting that it maybe represents itself through appearance, um, you know, throughout the
4: movie and the anime.
1: That's a very good point. Um, Appearance is a big part of Ghost in the Shell. And of course, we've we've been through who the Japanese think they are as a people and they're very conscious of their history. And uh, there's things that they want to know about where they came from. And there's things that they don't want to know about where they came from. And on the appearance side, probably the third or fourth time I watched it when Johansson disappears and she's using this bodysuit to, to reflect the background behind her so that she can disappear. And then she suddenly reappears And it's this very striking female form that I think we're all familiar with because we've seen every film that she's done the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. She's extremely feminized. And it's almost like not just the film, not just the director, but she is saying, sometimes you want to see me and sometimes you don't. And when you do see me, I want to choose as a woman when you see me and when you don't and miss johansson unfortunately has been the victim of a lot of these photograph leaks that have been going around and i found that part of the film very empowering where she had very specific say in the film about how they revealed her body and how it was displayed i don't know that that's true of a lot of women in hollywood And yeah. i wish it were true all of the time mm-hmm. yeah you know the supermodel uh, Emily Ratajkowski, who I know nothing about, just released a book last week called, yeah. called "The Body." Yeah. About she she discussed these various topics, and she went on to uh, the Guardian and did a like an hour long uh, interview on the Guardian on the podcast. And I was entranced by everything that she had to say. She, I I agreed with probably all of it. I just thought mm-hmm. it was it was amazing. Uh, someone else takes a picture of me, and yet they have control over the image of my body. How is that possible? Yeah. Right. It's very, very uh, strange. So Michaela Maroney is underage, takes self-shots of herself. They get leaked out. She goes to the court. She can get those those images uh, removed. And she has power of those images because she took those photos. Some of these people who took these photos, they don't know their names. Or in in Miss Lawrence's case, Jennifer Lawrence, it was like a boyfriend she didn't talk to anymore. He's not interested in, in mm-hmm. providing the legal force to get those images removed. How, how is it that someone else has purpose over you? This goes back to an interview on a podcast that Carrie Fisher did with uh, Kevin Smith. This was 15 years ago when Smotcast was just starting. Uh, she does not have control over her image as Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. She signed that away in 1976. And so the slave girl outfit has grown into this phenomenon that you see in um, conventions every summer, and she never got a penny out of it, mm-hmm. right? Um, that exploitive nature of the side of entertainment, it's, eventually it's, it's going to have, have to be dealt with.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, this conversation makes me really excited oh, to read and watch Ghost in the Shell. I feel so terrible that I haven't, I just didn't, didn't have time but now i'm really excited <laughs> yeah
4: it also exposes the lopsided nature of our relationship with ryan that he's watched everything we've recommended to him and we have not watched the one thing he's recommended to us so we're great friends uh, <laughs> you, you guys will love
0: it i mean it's it's a uh, it, it's it's incredible i mean i don't want to say anything that will spoil it for you but it really is it, it's fun yeah and it's it it is you know a very mentally stimulating narrative
3: mm-hmm.
0: love that you ready yeah.
1: for subs because like 15 percent of it is in japanese oh, okay. yeah. oh yeah yeah i have to watch
0: you have to watch it with with subtitles yeah. i mean i watch everything with subtitles i'm one of those people um because i don't want to miss anything yeah. in dialogue. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's just, and it's so cool. It's just such a cool movie. I mean, you know, I don't want to be, you know, basic and expressing my emotion over the film, but it is just really cool. Yeah.
1: yeah. If you, if you can see the anime first. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Otomo went to the premiere of Kira and watched it and he said he thought it was a failure. And then they told him it was a success the following Monday and he was surprised. And then all the international deals came in and he was really surprised of how popular it was overseas. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And then he went to go see it in America and he said the sound was different and it made the film better. I found that surprising. Usually it's the reverse. He said that Akira was universal because it is an anti-establishment work, and that goes from culture to culture to culture. What, what is it about Akira that is anti-establishment? I mean, we know the biker gangs are, but what is it about Tetsuo that is anti-establishment? Any ideas?
3: I was doing deep thinking after my third viewing of it, and
4: I had trouble articulating my thoughts, last commentary talking about the whole rebirth angle and whether or not that was positive or negative that the city was uh, rebirthed after this big tragedy and uh, you know obviously, a tragedy is not positive, but I think it's anti-establishment because after the city has been rebuilt, it's still, you think that would lead to a new, better society, but instead, in spite of all of the progress they've made, um, the government, the people, the higher class have taken it for granted and grown selfish and the, the socioeconomic gap is even wider than it presumably was before um, World War Three. And so, yeah, the super wealthy are at the top clinging to their money. The bottom are left to rot. And the only people really doing anything about it are these teenagers. They're the only people really rebelling. And you can kind of see as a viewer, you're like, okay, these are people, they're a little bit violent, rambunctious, but these are active members of the rebellion, They're like actually making a difference and riots are rampant in the streets later on in the film, but it all comes down to Tetsuo who is the one to finally make this new, new change, another rebirth because society has grown so poor that it's going to, you're going to have to do this all over again. And so, yeah, I think you can see a lot of that teenage angst, but rebellion in, uh, in the teenagers. Because, yeah, the city itself has become a black hole after the first black hole.
1: Do you have any thoughts, Ryan?
5: It's interesting. I think um, maybe if we maybe
0: specify establishment a little bit in terms of what Tetsuo is against, he's not just against you know, what we take establishment to mean in terms of authority or, um, you know, mass acceptance of an idea and kind of the way everybody goes about things. I think if we, if we take establishment to mean, you know, what are these pockets of ideologies or pockets of, um, you know, ways of life uh, to which most people conform, um, we can kind of blow it out into different Ideas of what establishment means, and that's whether it's government, whether it's religion, um, whether it's you community. Um, Tetsuo is anti all of that. If you look at it, he's in the manga, there's, you know, Lady Miyako, who I kind of take to represent the church um, in this story. Then you have the military and through the military, kind of this overarching governmental force. And then you have the other, you know, kind of idea of community being his friend group. And um, it doesn't matter how you slice it. He's on this personal quest of power and he's anti everything that gets in his way. And so he kind of represents this character that has decided to battle against anything that he recognizes as a threat in his quest. To whatever it is, whether he's trying to go after this harnessing of this power for personal gain or for authoritarian use or for domination it it he has a goal in mind, and anything regardless of where it comes from that tries to kind of impede him is is uh you know, represents a, a battle he's got to fight or, or something he's got to push back against. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, we, we have, you know, the the dichotomy between, you know, the capsules and the gangs and this kind of subculture, you know, fighting against, um, you know, the military and the government uh, in this story, but we also have one character that's fighting against everything. Um, so I think he's anti- every establishment not just specifically you know the the obvious uh kind of uh pitting of tetsuo against you know what the what the um obvious display of force to the military or the government is um i think i think the i want to dig deeper into that idea of of lady Miyako representing kind of the church and battling against you know an individual's fight against religion um in a, in a way, I, I don't, I haven't really thought about it too much, but I think it's an interesting point to to kind of at least bring up on the service.
1: Oh, you just wait another 20, 30 minutes when we get into the Bene Gesseris.
3: Oh, if, okay. yeah, so Don't I'll you invoke this this Dune. Dune. <laughs>
1: don't you invoke Dune in front of me.
0: <laughs> this will be a five hour podcast. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. His refusal, Tetsuo's refusal to follow Canada I looked it up. It's an affront to the Bozuzuku. Uh, their hierarchy is so rigid. And that was something that the Japanese audiences picked up on immediately was his rebelling against Canada. That was that was rebelling against everything. If Canada had been in a Bozuzuku and he was not the, the captain, he would never have rebelled up. That's that's why he was so pissed off at Tetsuo. I'm the boss. You're supposed to pay attention to me. right? You ever seen Gung Ho? gung-ho with michael keaton ron no. howard 1986 i think it is and yeah. michael keaton plays this uh labor leader in this town and it's kind of like flint michigan where the plant closed and everybody was out of work and he went to japan it's a great ron howard film it doesn't get any mileage today and i don't know why he goes to japan and he gets this japanese company to come make cars in this town in ohio that's that's dead and it's crazy like george went is in it um um to Jesus from John Turturro, you know, Jesus from big Lebowski's in it. There are all these car workers. There's, there's like on the face racism going on and uh, embedded in their, in their belief is uh, you work for us and we're asking you to make cars this way. Uh, Why are you arguing? There's no arguing. This is the way things are done. And the Americans are like, well, actually, no, we're a union and we have a say on how things are done in America, especially in, this plant in Ohio, it's very much the same type of uh, mentality between Canada and Tetsuo.
2: Yeah, I think that this conversation really points out a major departure from the manga because Tetsuo and Canada are not as sympathetic as they are in the anime, and there's a huge there's I guess the rivalry is more aggressive, and I didn't necessarily pick up. Why Canada was so aggressive toward Tetsuo in the beginning? Because I was like, yeah, sure, you know, like they're they were kind of from the same group. So why did he have such a visceral reaction to when Tetsuo started gaining power? But that does make a lot of sense because he's he's the one who is teasing Tetsuo about like, oh, your bike is a piece of shit you can't ride the way I can ride. Like you have to sort of make your bones before I take you seriously. And I kind of got that from the Tetsuo side of like why he would want to rebel. But now I more understand why Canada is more like, Hey, fuck you. Like you can't gain more power than me. That comes across more in the manga. Whereas in the anime, he wants to save Tetsuo. So that's, that's actually quite a departure from the manga.
1: And one thing that I found uh, about the anime is there's a there's a Japanese nuance using uh, Roman G when they face off for the first time, Tetsuo calls Canada Kenzishan, which is which is a diminutive term for children, calling a superior. Oh. This is a, this is an insult of great magnitude in Japanese culture. Uh, this is kinda like the I don't know if you guys saw Squid Game. Oh yeah. There, there's a there's a big subs versus dubs argument going yeah. on in Squid Game uh, because it's it's missing all kinds of shit. Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: Right? I, I had no idea. You know, how do you pick up on stuff like that? So, also in Japan, to leave a clan for another clan, regardless of group or society, is an unforgivable transgression. As Tetsuo left for the clowns, and reverse, he did so with shame. And the fact that, actually, when you read it in the manga, and you you see it in the anime, Tetsuo had no shame. No shame at all. and That was absolutely, to to Canada, that was unforgivable. I mean, if you're going to do something like that, don't do something like that. But if you're going to do it, do it with shame. Tetsuo had no shame.
5: Right.
4: Yeah, you can definitely feel the Shakespearean... Game of Thrones nature of all these pockets of the city and have it. It's very, it's universal that what Tetsuo leaving his gang means to Kaneda and you understand even more so in that anime, because it's quicker, the impact of that decision for sure. Let's talk about uh,
1: Tetsuo the Creep. And I'm going to jump into some of the stuff that's going on in Stephen King's works later. But uh, in, in the book, in the, in the fifth Tankoban, Tetsuo is using a member of the Empire to lure young girls uh, to Akira's palace. Then he plies them with drugs, in which they eventually will OD and die. And then he hosts an orgy, and this is done uh, page by page for about three different pages, in which you see the orgy take place and the girls OD, and the only survivor out of one of these orgies is um, Corey. Corey, yeah, yeah. Um, that wasn't in the anime, no. And Probably for the best in the book, <laughs> yeah, in the book. Uh, I was, I was right. I was, I was understanding Tetsuo up to that point. And then to me, that was the threshold. After that, I was like, this, this guy is shit. And I, I'm not a Tetsuo fan anymore. And I think that's another aspect of Akira that's lost at some point in time, at no point in time during the film. Do you think, you know, um, this Tetsuo guy, he's just, he just has a different point of view. You know, he's just, he's just a villain like any other villain. But if you'd had something like that groundbreaking in the film, which I think it's obvious why they didn't put it in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, I think your audience reaction would be very different at the end when Canada is, is the victor. It's almost knowing that reading the the Tonko bonds, you're kind of, you're 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 very relieved at the end when when Canada is is the victor. They're watching the film, it's almost it's not that you don't care. That's how the way things are going to work, but it's less of an impact. Ryan is studiously looking at his taco Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to refresh
0: my because I I remembered that um I mean you, you brought it up again. Um I just had Forgotten of that part, probably on purpose. Um, so, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it kind of came back, and and yeah, it's 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 not uh, super. Um, it's not enjoyable or fun at all. No, it's completely
1: uh, misogynistic. Nobody wants to really think about it or talk about it or or, or dwell on it. I certainly don't. Right, but it is one of those elements that's missing out of Akira. And that, that does affect your judgment on Tetsuo by the end of the end of the book, and and it also has a has a second uh, result, which is he, he is very specifically uh, focusing after that event to abandon the flesh in order to transcend reality, and it's it's like uh, abandoning the flesh doesn't mean anything unless he indulges in the flesh, right? So it's it's, so it's doing something very specific there. Because you could just look at it and reading like, what is this bullshit going on? But Otomo, like a lot of things, he's doing it on purpose. He's he's putting Tetsuo through that experience so that he can leave that experience. And I think that's something that's very adult. Um, You're in that first relationship, that first sexual relationship. You're having a whole lot of fun for six months or a year. Or if you're not, you're playing the field. If you're one of these people who does that over and over and over again with different people, and eventually you come out the other side, and you're a different person because you realize that that stuff really actually doesn't really matter as much as we thought. Yeah. What What matters is is finding someone that has stability, finding someone that's that I can spend the rest of my life with that that can be a companion,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right, for twelve decades, not twelve hours. And I think that's that's Tetsuo's own journey that Otomo is trying to describe, but I could be wrong. (laughs)
2: Yeah. We could all be wrong in our interpretations, but Yeah. yeah, gosh, that's, that's pretty dark. That's something that is interesting about the manga is it just doesn't look away from a lot of stuff like that. And like you said, I mean, I think sometimes my taste in movies and books is hard to define because I don't mind dark stuff as long as there's a background for it or as long as there's a purpose for it. I have a lot of problems personally with, you know, just unnecessary gore or horror or terror or violence. But I mean, that kind of thing, if it has a purpose and it's saying something important about identity, especially for Tetsuo, I understand why it's there. It's like it's tough to look at, but I think it's interesting that Atomo is diving into it.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, if there's if there's no point to it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: So it's 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 funny because Tetsuo has Tetsuo has all of these these flaws as a human being. And as a superhero taking those flaws it just, it just expounds the flaws. It just makes everything worse. To be a bad person is horrible. To be a superhero and a bad person. Yeah. It reminds me of this, this really funny joke that Robin Williams told a long time ago, which was, uh, or I think it was Bill Cosby, actually, the person we're not supposed to mention anymore, which is uh, he, he asked a friend of his, well, why do you like cocaine? And they said, well, it enhances your personality. And Bill Cosby's joke was, yeah, but what if you're an asshole? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah. no, we had that discussion uh, when we were covering Watchmen because we talked about how in a lot of ways the flawed superheroes are a lot like Greek gods because the Greek gods, they were deities who had, you know, flaws that were blown out of proportion And we talked a lot about how coming into contact with humans is that, that interplay is really interesting, you know, and humans are always trying to better themselves or hopefully better themselves. But these deities don't really have that, um, that impetus because in a lot of ways they're immortal. And so (laughs) when you're immortal, like what, what's going to keep you interested And a lot of times for Greek gods, it was just meddling in human affairs. And with Watchmen, it's it's really interesting to see those questions applied to justice, criminal justice, and how that can twist people's sense of justice and affect how they treat other people if other people don't live up to that definition of justice. And so yeah, and so we kind of dug into that with Rorschach, which is exactly that. Like he has this personal code of justice, and if people don't, you know, live up to that, then he punishes them. And that's not necessarily moral but to him it was moral so yeah with tetsuo i think it's a lot of that is just like he's trying to figure out what this power means to him and what he can do with that power and i don't think he completely comes into that because he dies so i think i mean i guess maybe that's just another way of looking at you know being careful with your power and stuff like that but yeah those are really interesting things to yeah think about
4: yeah and in an even broader sense tetsuo is a representation of humanity's immaturity once receiving power because akira is very much focused on japan's past but it's universal because at least to americans because as soon as america gained the atomic bomb bomb immediately used it as soon as other countries gained the atomic bomb immediately cold war and it goes to Tetsuo especially in the movie but it's there's not even a beat once he gains his powers he he's immediately
1: yeah. abusing it yeah. and
4: it does it does have that connection to like uh, greek mythology like he is Hades like he is representing a certain people he's fallen from the heavens and he's as bad as the people he's supposedly protecting or ruling over.
2: Yeah. It's really interesting to think about different countries and the way that they handle power, because we were talking about with Japan, Japan has been in a lot of situations where they've had a lot of power and in a lot of situations where they haven't had a lot of power. And in America, it's a very different conversation because America is a very aggressive country but it's because I feel like we've been in such a socioeconomic place of power for so long that we're very afraid to lose that power. So it's like a lot of times I feel like Americans don't have that interplay. like We don't have that understanding, especially in living memory, probably since the American Revolution, <laughs> of not being on top and and not being a controlled entity. So if you think about that with different um, different communities, then you're going to get very different reactions, I guess, yeah. to receiving
1: that power. Sure. Well what I used to tell my students when we talked about it was nobody liked Rome. <laughs> <laughs> no nobody liked Rome. Everybody, you read any history of any of any country, any people that was conquered by Rome or bordered Rome, they hated Romans. Yeah. And that's what we are. We're Rome. We're a yeah. republic and we're on top for now. Yeah you know, and, and trying to come to terms with the fact that uh, uh, we're not going to be on top. Like that's, that's going to be very difficult.
4: Mm -hmm. I am I'm experiencing that now as a Patriots fan, I was on top for years. And (laughs) (laughs) and now not so, I see, I saw that Ryan, he he did the thumbs down listeners and, uh,
1: oh, he did two thumbs down. That's it. You're canceled. (laughs) That's all right. I went to two games, the world series. Nice. And I watched my beloved Astros fuck it all up. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. And so Tetsuo, I want to get back to the Watchmen. I want to cap this off. And Tetsuo thinks that his ultimate flaw is weakness. If, if you if you read the the manga or you watch the anime, you know he's constantly worried about you know I'm a weak person and I have to show myself up. I've, you know, he's got this huge chip on his shoulder the entire time. He's wrong. Um, his yeah. his greatest flaw is not weakness. His greatest flaw is pride. Yeah. And that's what gets him into all of these problems is his pride. Can't swallow his pride for shit. That's really Mm -hmm. something very difficult to deal with when you've got a friend with, with that problem, particularly if it's a substance abuse problem. Oh, pride will fuck them up. Mm. That Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then once again, that
4: ties into the metaphor of countries with power. They would, they much more go to pride over apologizing and trying to make something better. It's like, no, we're going to stick by
5: our
2: guns. Stick by
4: the
5: story.
2: Uh,
1: literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And and what you're saying about the Watchmen, I, I know it's a it's a completely completely different narrative arc than than Akira. Uh, but the notion of of these superheroes that are flawed. And were more like Greek gods, that was something that Alan Moore did that was very original, yeah, you, you know, or uh, when when Alan Moore did the Dark Knight and or Frank Miller did, and as Batman uh, he was killing people, that turned a lot of heads mm-hmm. uh, and and it it led to a, a completely different um, narrative environment that Warner Brothers is still trying to to get on top of today um. I love the Watchmen. Um, We'll have to belay that for now.
2: Okay, yeah.
1: Uh, (laughs) We could talk
2: about Watchmen for Oh, yeah, that'll be
1: another four hours, yeah. Uh, Otomo's epic work divided the world of manga into a before and after, with Akira seen as a fundamental break in the history of the medium, both artistically and culturally. Mm -hmm. I I think that this is true. Even if you look at the Ghibli before and the Ghibli after, it, it looks different. It flows differently, don't you think, Ryan?
0: Could you refresh me on on Ghibli?
5: A studio Ghibli, you know,
1: like if you look at uh,
5: uh,
1: any of the Ghibli films before. And and they're a direct competitor to Otomo and the dark nature of anime, right? Ghibli is flowery, youthful, um, hippy-dippy stuff. And and, uh, Otomo's side of anime is very blunt, forced trauma type of Stuff, but you can still see the the flow of of uh, the anime itself, the the higher frames per second, for example, and just generally the quality of what you see in Ghibli improves after. There's no Ghost in the Shell if there's no Akira. Exactly. I was just
0: about to say that. I think it absolutely set a precedent that you know people, um, viewers, audiences loved and came to adore and. Was accepted um, as the benchmark from that point going on, and I, I, I think you know, you beat me to the punch. Without Akira, there's, there's no Ghost in the Shell, and um, you know, at all, um, or any films, uh, or, or, you know, adaptations uh, post Akira that are relevant or, or similar um, in terms of style, in terms of depiction of. Certain things, whether it's violence or sexuality, uh, it, it's a landmark um, and, and and definitely a benchmark
5: going forward.
1: OK, time for a segue. Before Akira, Otomo did a short film called uh, Domo that was based on one of his graphics novels, graphic novels. Domo actually, Atomo said, was inspired by The Shining, and you guys did an episode on The Shining. Yes, we did. I listened, which I listened to, and I found infinitely entertaining.
2: Oh, thank Thank you. you. That's such high praise, Dylan. That means a lot.
1: So, so now I want to, I want to get into Stephen King, since The Shining inspired Domo.
2: Let's do it. it. I'm reveling already. I'm ready to talk about King.
1: Mixed with and Ryan walks away. <laughs>
2: He's out. Uh,
1: and we're going to mix this a lot with Dr. Sleep.
2: We just uh, covered Dr. Sleep, so perfect. Yeah, I,
1: I, I listened to that, too. That was another <laughs> great episode. Um, so where, where do we even start with this? So I, I, read, I read The Shining when I was, I don't know, in middle school or something, and I was quite surprised because I had already seen the film. The book is so different than the film. And effectively it's, it's about a drinking problem. Yeah. And uh, I had to read the book again in college and I'm, I i do not know how I feel about this, but I'm, I'm of the, of the opinion since I read it for the second time for, I read it for a literature class in college that there's actually, there's nothing supernatural going on in, in the book. Yeah. And the reason I, the reason I say that is, is, I think that it's largely from Jack's perspective, Jack Torrance's perspective. And there's, there's, there's a lot of delusion going on. There's a lot of hallucination going on. Uh, You know, he's freaking out at the rose bushes and none of, none of this is in the film, which if you, so it's almost like it takes it out of context. It's like Kubrick is only showing you these very selective scenes to make you think in a certain way. But then I I watched the film again uh, with my son when he first saw it a couple of years ago And then, of course, I watched that documentary, uh, Room 237. I don't know if you've seen that. I've I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. And the one thing that really shocked me uh, that kind of reinforced that belief was there's only one thing in the film, one thing that is truly supernatural in the film, and that is when Jack Torrance is in the pantry and the door mysteriously unlocks. Mm -hmm. That's the only only thing in everything else you can chalk up to – uh, the drinking or some sort of hallucination induced or non-induced or just going stir crazy. And even that, even, even that may not be supernatural. If you take into account that perhaps maybe if you, if you give it a little bit of credence and maybe this is not possible, maybe Danny opened the pantry. Mm-hmm.
2: Interesting. I never thought of that.
1: Uh, Cause you don't see Danny for a very long time after after that shot and that had me thinking about uh how brave it was for king to dive into uh, dr sleep mm. and the entire controversy about that i thought your episode brought up a, a lot of really good points on dr sleep that i hadn't thought about and i listened to i read it when it came out and then i listened to the audio book just very recently okay and uh I was I really forgot just the melding of the characters and how different characters are gone and then other characters are combined and and I was I too was amazed at how close the the finale was just over like that in the book like I was, yeah was, yeah it was really that took me by surprise but I thought the film did a very good job of to, of just making the finale longer mm-hmm. and more meaningful
2: yeah. Yeah, and how sacrificing characters upped the stakes a little bit because I thought a lot of characters were going to die. I thought that they were going to go back to The Shining Book where Jack sacrifices himself for Danny. I thought the same thing was going to happen with Danny for Abra. Mm -hmm. And I think the movie did a really smart thing by pulling that off. I'm not sure why King decided not to do that. But that's what I was expecting, and I'm glad that the movie did that.
4: (laughs) Yeah, because it is strange, because the true knot in the book are very scary, and they they are a threat. But as soon as they start fighting Abra and Danny, they lose every single time, including the ending, which is why I was so disappointed with it. I was Like I said in that episode, it was going to be one of my favorite books of all time. Until that, it, it didn't feel... It didn't feel like the same writer, so the movie definitely capitalized on that.
1: Well, and not to get too deep into it, but you know, Stephen King writes differently after his accident. Mm. So it's almost it's almost like before before he was run over and after he was run. Over. there there's some people that will completely disagree with that. That's fine, but you know, eleven sure. twenty two sixty three was written after that, for example, and that mm. that book does not read very different like King at, at all. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah, great great book and and great great series yeah on Hulu um no I I I agree with that and you know the the Torrance family line is tortured and I really at first when I first read Dr. Sleep I was upset that he was going down the same road that that Danny had this drinking problem too um and as as someone who has people in their family that fight substance abuse you know it's it's not it's not something that I want to read or or watch um I remember going to see a Robert Zemeckis film with Denzel Washington and it's about a drug addict who has a drinking problem and it's not, it's a great movie. It's fine. It's called flight, mm. you know, but that, that's not the movie that I wanted to go see. I wanted to go see back to the future and I, right. I wound up, you know, watching a two hour movie about, a, about recovery. And
4: right. right. Yeah. That movie was very much marketed as a plane crash diversion movie and it, it's not that, At all. It's that's just the opening scene from what I recall.
1: Well, they, they learned that way back in, I think it was 89. It was right after Batman. Michael Keaton did a movie called clean and sober where he, he played a guy with a, uh, with a a drinking problem and a cocaine problem. And uh, the, you know, they marketed, I mean, the movie's called clean and sober. Come, come and watch Michael Keaton fight with a sobriety. Nobody wanted to go see that. Yeah. You know, absolutely not. There's no, not interested Batman with a drinking problem. no,
4: (laughs) A great movie about um, alcoholism that came out recently, which I recommend is called uh, the way back with Ben Affleck Uh, play a basketball coach uh, at a high school Um, that I think the marketing was very true to the story of that. It's only half a basketball story. It's really focused on him. It's a character study. So I would definitely recommend that movie.
1: Uh, That's the last movie I saw uh, before lockdown. And I was in a movie theater Friday, the thirteenth of March, which <laughs> wow. I think was the which was, was the day of, of uh, the governor's announcement. Yep, mm-hmm. and yes, it was. I went when uh, I was in Encino or Calabasas. Went oh, to a yeah. theater out there,
3: nice and
1: uh, uh, great movie theater. And there was nobody there. There's nobody there. And I think I think well no, the next day, the next day, my son and I went to go see Harry Potter: Deathly Hallows Part One at the New Beverly.
2: Oh, that's fun. Very cool. On nice. film.
1: Yeah. And then that was the last day they were open until they just reopened a few months ago. Wow.
2: Yeah. We, yeah, we have a kind of similar story. We went to a Tame Paula show at, um, the at forum. the forum and we started getting like, as we're walking in, we started getting updates that Tom Hanks and Rita, Rita Wilson said us. So. his wife that's right they that's had right. gotten covid and then as we're walking out of the show like two hours later it's like nba shuts down <laughs> like yeah. started getting all these and we're like we should probably get out of this like fifty thousand. Yeah.
4: 000- <laughs> yeah we are gonna see tame but then we are
1: gonna
2: yeah. then we're gonna shut it down
1: yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> but anyway <laughs> back to stephen king
1: <laughs> yeah well has he done any book on viruses i'm trying to think he did. Uh, Cujo is uh, kind of about. The stand. The stand is about a virus. Right.
4: And uh, he did. Didn't he do uh, Cell or se- like the computer virus that goes on everyone's phones and then all technology is oh, I don't, destroyed? I don't remember I'm that.
2: Familiar, no.
4: I, I think so. Cell. So
2: yeah, that's cool. I'll look,
4: look that up while you're talking.
1: But yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So going to it, which was recently remade. Into it chapter one, it chapter two. Um, I got into an argument with a friend of mine uh, on a podcast, actually. Over over it. I read it when I was when I was 12 or 13. It was before the before the uh, miniseries came out, which was horrible and I hated it. And so you guys read it. No, Long time ago. Long time ago. Yeah, okay, so the, they survived. Did you did you see it? Chapter one, chapter two. I don't want to do spoilers. I'll skip this if I have to. I I've, did. No, I've I've yeah. yeah. Okay. Two of you have seen it, so I guess Laura, do you want to? You can
2: you can spoil because I know enough about it that I know like what's in the book versus what's not in the book and stuff. So go ahead. The
1: kids win.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, <laughs> I don't think that's a you know the kids win, but in in the book the 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 enormous page turner. Uh, that happened after they had survived this enormous calamity. And by the way, like if, if you had read the finale in the book, it was a page turning, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And you thought they were never going to get it out of the situation alive. And then they did. So the last chapter was this this relief as a reader that it was all over. And then it was a page turner just trying to get to the end of the book because you wanted to make sure that everybody was – you know, what they had gone on and done. In all of that, I think there's a page, page and a half, in which King describes this preteen orgy that happens right outside the cave.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's a celebratory moment between all of them um, that this, that they can live now, that they they can go on. And they're all like 13, 12, or 12, 13. The book came out, and needless to say, that was an enormous drawback to the publicity. It was people getting to the end of the book and then immediately saying, "I can't believe that King wrote this underage orgy at the end of the book." The child killing they were okay with, <laughs> right. yeah. So th- that, to me, is a- is another another thing that I just don't understand um, about about how we look at literature and about how we, we look at film. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this great documentary called um, this film has not yet been rated. Talks about the rating system and the director of boys don't cry. Very, very talented filmmaker. Uh, So this is one of the things that I, I don't understand about American society. And if you, if you had been in the middle East and I've been in the middle East a couple of times, and if you had watched Al Jazeera, Um, During the Iraq war You would have a greater appreciation For how other people look at their media Um, Al Jazeera Does not give a shit They will will Play the most violent things in the world They will play beheadings Live And uh, they will show uh, Unbelievable things That you will not see in the west And they will leave it up to whatever Country they are broadcasting to To edit them out we have a self-censored structure in the United States when it comes to film. We have no structure when it comes to literature, which is how it should be, in my opinion. And um, the, the MPAA, uh, they, they did a documentary on it called, um, this film has not yet been rated, and Kimberly Pierce was on it talking about her experience trying to rate uh, Boys Don't Cry. The rating process for Boys Don't Cry was a complete travesty. And they they came back and said you can't you can't show this shot of Hillary Swank's genitalia. You can't we just can't have it on screen. And then we we can't have this love scene between her and uh, I want to say that it was Chloe Chloe Savini. Yeah, I was correct. There was a love scene between her and Chloe Savini. You can't you can't have that um, because there's female fluid on the top of Hillary Swank's lip after the sex scene and she wipes it off and we can't we can't have that. Oh but shooting Hillary Swank in the head and have her brains fly over the wall, that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. We have no problem with murdering a female. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we can't show that a female is a female. Right. That's that's bad. I mean I I find that really misogynistic. And the fact that they told a female director what she could and could not have in her film in regards to a female image, that's disgusting. And I don't care how many females are sitting on the board at the NPAA. And so if there's anything that made me think that the NPAA needs to go away, it was that documentary. There's either that or we have to find some sort of replacement. Yeah, I mean, this is is crazy. Like uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone talking about uh, Team America World Police about how you should have seen the stuff that we that didn't make the film because they were deliberately putting in uh, scatology hoping that these other things that were really perverted and funny would pass through right right so if we just push the fold then uh, what we really wanted the film will be and we actually didn't want that stuff in the film at all and we may cut it out later. but we want to see what passes the ratings. That's, that's a messed up way to do your art.
2: Yeah, we, we talked about that a little bit when we covered The Handmaiden, which is a movie that both Danny and I really, really love and how there are a lot of very explicit sex scenes in the movie, but the way that they're done is very respectful. And then, of course, you can very directly compare that to Blue is the Lormous Color movie, which is extremely sexualized and was directed by a man and neither of those movies are rated in America but it's just interesting that they tried to express the same thing and Blue is the Warmest Color failed in a really big way because it just wasn't treated the same as The Handmaiden and I think like if there was a lot more respect and a lot more understanding and a lot more Yeah, I guess for the female body and female experiences, then those kinds of things could be rated in a mature way. I think that's what it kind of gets to is like, we're all adults. If we know that there's explicit content, but it's respectful and it has a meaning, like there's a meaning behind it, then that can be rated and and that can be appropriate in movies. But if you're taking meaning out by censoring something like a sex scene then that's not really serving the movie or the TV show.
1: Thank you for the greatest segue possible. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I knew that you wanted to talk about blue, Soros colors. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't know that it was based on a book and I, I found your description of the book uh, really compelling. And, and I had no idea that it was that even as a source material, that the film would be just so different.
3: Yeah. Un- unbelievably
1: different. And, you know, w- when it came out and it hit con and, Lea C was at the top of the world, or at least outside the United States, she was at the top of the world. You know, I I had heard about it and and then it hit Netflix and I watched it late at night actually when I was I was in bed with my kids. My kids are were, I don't know, um 12 and 10 or something, and and or nine, and and I was watching it on my phone. And I I thought like, wow, this for the for the first 30 minutes I was really amazed at the setup and the the raw motion of everything, the the female leads in that Adele Exarpolis or however you pronounce your name. Sorry. They, they seem to just have this, this great chemistry on screen that is, is really rare. Uh, First of all, most films like we were talking about before fail the Bechtel test. You don't have two female Mm -hmm. leads. You don't, you don't have them talking about a situation in which a guy is not involved like this so it was it was rather refreshing seeing that. I didn't I didn't catch, you're gonna have to forgive me. I didn't catch how misogynistic it was the first time I watched it, uh, because it, it fools you. Hmm. Be- because it shows you emotions that are so raw and you're so wrapped up in the performances, you kind of skip over the art slash porn that's going mm-hmm.
2: on. Yeah.
1: And I mean, that film will never be rated in the United States. There's no reason for them to take it to a ratings board. It'll never pass a censor. And <laughs> it'll never be released in, in, in cinemas. It, it it did hearken me. I, I was, at some aspect, I was like, why is this so controversial? I, mm. I was kind of thinking that, like, I don't understand why controversial it was. And then I saw the love scene, the first one, and I didn't know there was a second one. So the second one's even more explicit. And it, it reminded me of Showgirls. Showgirls comes out. Joe Hazy does the script. Verhoeven is directing it. Who is not going to go see this film after Total Recall and Lost Boys and and basic Instinct? everybody's going to go see this movie. I went to see the movie. It was complete dog shit. And a lot of people were wondering like, well, what's the big deal? I don't understand the big deal. Well, I saw it in a screen that had a 70 millimeter screen. There's that one shot after the joke of a lap dance that Elizabeth Berkeley gives to Kyle MacLachlan, which I can't believe I just used those two actors in the same sentence. <laughs> She stands up, she walks towards the camera, and her genitalia is six feet tall on a 70-millimeter screen. That is why that, that film is rated in NC-17, in, in for, for for that one reason. There was no other reason. Boobs are boobs are boobs or boobs. The movie is filled with boobs. Right. So it's very clearly that the, the board, the, the ratings board, does not like female genitalia. They don't want to see it ever. And to to think that there is somebody telling you what you cannot and can see and to think that there's, a, there's an, a, a company in France that says, yeah, we won't release this in America because it'll never be rated to a point where we can make a profit. So we're not even going to do it. You know what we're going to do? We're going to cut our losses. We're going to make a deal with Netflix. And then Blue, the Warmest Color is going to be the number one thing seen on Netflix for a month. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the best we can do with our art. That's that's disappointing, really. It's disappointing how Kashish chose to shoot those images. Cause I do think that they're disrespectful. Once once you get past that, you know, once again, I get I get in rap into the performances. I just mm-hmm. think those two actresses were yeah. over the moon fantastic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I completely agree. I wish that if we did have a censorship board like the MPAA that could see past the images and more of like what the images are trying to say, then maybe some of that could have been censored out or someone maybe, maybe a gay female on the censorship board would say like, this is disrespectful to images of women having sex on screen so maybe these images get cut out but the way that those two women are acting as young lovers is beautiful then maybe we would have a more respectful movie I don't know like it's something to think about because I as much as I don't agree with like total censorship I think if we had people in positions of power who could say like this serves the overall experience of the movie let's keep it in even though it's a little explicit that would be a better situation
1: <laughs> it's it's not that difficult to have diversity it's it really isn't you just find the most talented people there's a rush more of them and mm-hmm. and then you pick out people who are diverse I don't get the that's the that's the one thing you know if you're gonna list everything Ann Coulter has said in the last 30 years, I would basically refuse to read any of it. But one of them, one thing that she did say was, you know, if you had had more conservatives at ABC, CBS, and NBC over a 60-year period, there would be no Fox News. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely true. Mm,
2: interesting, and, yeah. Never thought of it that you way. Know,
1: like. And I'm not trying to to neuter a, a pool of, of diverse talent in, in some sort of uh, Maelstrom Force. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say it belongs everywhere. Yeah. And it belongs on the ratings board. And it's very clear that when you see the idea that blue is the warmest color is not even released in cinemas in America, that's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's directly because, like you said, it wouldn't pass to the ratings board. Maybe if they had more diverse ratings boards, it would have been released. So, I mean, are we just going to get into the right now? Oh hell! It's your yes.
2: podcast. We're just guests. I
1: thought you'd never take us. <laughs> I see Ryan having this sort of uh, Bruce Willis like smirk here. I'm just waiting. Ryan, have you have you read the book by chance? I, I was before the audio got
0: hooked up. I was explaining to Dan and Laura that I I tried to to get it done before I watched the movie. I'd read it as a kid. So I I I knew I was gonna reread it regardless and rewatch it again to put the you know connections together, but it's been a long time since I read the book, but I could not have been happier with with the film. I mean, I'm a huge Denis Villeneuve fan. Um Blade Runner 2049 probably will pop up in a rush more question later, but um yeah, it was it was astounding.
1: Excellent. Yeah.
4: Danny? My, my, I loved it as well, and I reread the book um, f- right before the movie, and we're going to do an episode on it as well. But it is my favorite book, so spoiler alert for Rushmore. Um, and, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I worship uh, Denis Villeneuve. I, you probably know that from listening to my podcast. I can't stop talking about man, but, uh, yeah, he's – he's uh, everything he's done has blown me away. All
1: right, I have the 25th anniversary edition of Dune published in September of
2: 1990. Nice.
1: Beautiful. The copy that I originally read. And this this goes into my theory on the remake. This is the first after Princess Arulan's message, which is almost the beginning of every every chapter. The first paragraph says, In the week before their departure to Arrakis, when all the final scurrying about had reached a nearly unbearable frenzy, an old crone came to visit the mother of the boy, Paul. It's the first thing they say. (laughs) I'm one of those people that I don't like to know what movies are about. If I think it's got a, a really cool concept, then I will just run into it not knowing anything. And sometimes I get surprised and uh, I find the majority of time I'm better off for it. About 48 hours before I went, my friend Dave Anderson texted me and we started talking about when we were going to go see it. We wanted to see it in the theater. And that's when uh, I said, yeah, and I looked at the runtime. And the runtime is, is uh 15 minutes shy of of the first film. So <laughs> so uh I don't know how he's gonna pull that off. And that's when Dave texted you back and he said, No, dude, it's only part one. Yeah. And I I was I mean, I nearly shit my pants. Yeah. <laughs> this well, so where so then then the texting really got into a frenzy. Well, when is it gonna end? Like what what <laughs> scene? He's like, I don't know, you you go see it? So there seems to me to be some very interesting choices going on with uh, the film. The film is a success. They've already they greenlit chapter two like two days uh, after the weekend was over, so Tuesday. Yeah, and I'm very happy to see it. I don't want to trash the movie at all. Um, I did not find it nearly as compelling as a lot of people. Um, I, I I do I do love the first hour. Uh, I've got some problems with it, and I wanted to work through this this trauma with the three of you. <laughs> And and hopefully I can convey a, a sense of adoration, and and I'm not looking to change your opinion, but maybe maybe you can talk me out of out of my reservations. Have you seen *Othello* 1952 by Orson Welles? No, no.
4: Okay, I've only seen so, the Lawrence Fishburne one.
1: Right. So that one is really close to the play. Cool. And I think that's only missing like 15 or 20% of the dialogue. Uh, The one from 1952 is missing like 80% of the dialogue. And this is very stylistic. A lot of it is because sometimes Orson couldn't afford a sound recorder. So he was just filming stuff in black and white. And I'll just worry about how to incorporate the sound later. And that film was largely made into the editing room. He shot four times more than he needed, blah, blah, blah. He went through four Desdemonas before he found the one that worked. It was problem after problem after problem, but uh, 80% of the dialogue of that play is jettisoned in the film. And he only focuses on one theme, obsession. And he hits it hard. So in Shakespeare, if it's not about obsession, he threw it out the window. He didn't bother with any of these other subplots. He didn't you know, I don't know how many scenes. There's, there's five acts. There's about five to ten scenes in each act. And it's, it's a two-hour movie, which is hard for any Shakespeare tragedy. Just reading this first paragraph, it seems very clear to me that Vienu, Vienu right? Am I pronouncing it right?
4: Nah, Viennu
1: Veneuve. Okay. It seems very clear to me that Veneuve had one focus for this film, and that is Paul. And if it didn't have anything to do with Paul, it was going out the window. So my wife, who is not a Dune fan, and she did like the film but she was very curious about this Dr. Yui character.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And why he shows up and why he does the things that he does. And not that it wasn't explained, but I just didn't get it. In the first film, Yui is standing next to you for the first 20 minutes. And there's, there's narration, there's voiceover, there's introduction, there's dialogue that enforces to you Yui. Now, in the book, Yui is revealed as a traitor from the get-go. Right. Mm -hmm. The traitor Yui is how he's introduced. Yeah. And in the film, there's a scene with the Baron Harkonnen and Fade Rautha and the Beast Raban, And Fade says, you know, we want to know who the traitor is. And and Baron's saying, no, I'm not going to tell you. And when you find out that it's Dean Stockwell, of all people, uh, everyone is just really surprised. If you didn't read the book, it was the the idea that Yui could do something like that. It really took people by surprise. I, I did not have that impact in this film, and neither did my wife. She was just confused. What did you guys think? Yeah, think that's the
2: it, one thing that the guys <laughs> criticized.
4: It, 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 it. Tough to defend movies you love because your emotion overrides um, a lot of talking points. But yeah, that is the one. And and only one, to be perfectly honest here, I'm laying my cards out. That's the one and only criticism I do have of the film is that Dr. Yui is not developed enough for that reveal to have impact. However, my rebuttal, and this largely comes out of my love for the film, maybe I'm reaching here, but I don't think Denis was going for a big reveal because earlier on he has that scene which is kind of similar to the book but it's largely uh revised is that scene with uh, the reverend mother talking to the baron with piter there and i think that's where they reveal they have that big reveal where okay there's going to be a betrayal i think that scene is meant to have some impact because in that scene Two things are happening. One, you're realizing that the Bene Gesserit kind of has ulterior motives. You're told that, but now you're really seeing that in action of like, oh, the, you know, the Reverend Mother, she's planning for House Atreides to fall. But you're, you know, you're also getting the reveal of, you know, shit's going to go down now and Paul and Jessica will be spared, but everyone else will die. So that's my very weak defense of that moment. I th- think a lot of scenes with Dr. Yui were, are on the cutting room floor because Warner Brothers you know, mandated a, a two-and-a-half hour film after Blade Runner 2049 failed financially uh, because of its length, people have claimed, and I agree with that. So, yeah, unfortunately not enough development with Dr. Yui. It's the one thing where but at the same time, I must acknowledge that I wish there was more scenes.
1: Okay. Ryan, do you want to weigh in? Do you want to pass? Um,
0: I just maybe provide, you know, my, my own, you know, rudimentary, I guess, reaction to it. Um, Dan and Laura, that are the experts here. Um, so I'll, you know, lean on them, but, uh, I, I agree with that. I when when Yui was revealed as the traitor, it was more of a sadness for me because you you barely are kind of exposed to what's seemingly his loyalty or devotion to the family, um, being how he treats Paul uh before he goes into um you know the scene where he has to put his hand in the box. Um and his guidance. And it's just enough to where you, you kind of put him in the back of your mind as a good guy. And then when he's revealed, you know, to be the traitor and why he chose to do what he did, it explains it. Um, but it wasn't this, you know, no way. Oh shit moment. I can't believe it. It was, it was just like, Oh, come on. Really? Like I was kind of like hoping, you know, that he was, he was going to be, um, you know, something more than that. And, and this is coming from, you know, someone who read the book a long time ago, that was a piece that I had forgotten. So it was, you know, you know, if you, the fact that, you know, I kind of didn't remember that from the book, whereas Dan and Laura were obviously well-versed and to have similar reactions, I think is, is maybe um, a statement. It, It just, the reveal kind of fell flat, but I was more sad, you know, than, than anything. It wasn't, you know, the surprise wasn't really, wasn't really there. Um, But, you know, again, that's, that's kind of a superficial, I guess, reaction since I, I didn't reread the, the book beforehand, but that's just my take on it.
1: Laura.
2: Yeah, I have, I have three points that I think, unfortunately are, are a letdown of the movie about Dr. Yue. So, The first one is that we don't get the scene which is in the book where he gives paul a sort of prayer book and that's a great scene in the book because it shows how devoted he is to paul and i think maybe villeneuve had to replace or kind of um what's the word not converge um I think that scene with the scene where he's kind of killing Duke Leto and he's explaining like, I'll take your ring. I'm going to save your wife and child. So that that scene does show his devotion, but I think another scene with Paul could have opened him up a little bit more. Um, The other thing is that even after this is like three quarters of the way through the book, um, Paul and his mother's what's his mother's name? Jessica. Paul and yeah, thank you. Paul and Jessica are now deep into Arrakis. Again, this is like two-thirds of the way into the movie, and we meet Gurney Halleck again. He's reintroduced. We think he's dead, but he's not. And he still thinks that Jessica's the one who betrayed the family. And he tries to kill Jessica. Spoilers, I guess. And that, I think that shows, that reminds the audience how left field Dr. Yue was as the traitor, which I think is really cool. That's a really interesting thing. Like even as the audience, we know who it is, but the characters in the novel are still like mind blown. They're like, no way, no way. That's the doctor. Like that, that couldn't happen. Um, and it's the whole thing about, he has this training, this kind of programming in his mind that would technically not let him betray yeah, the, the family. The,
1: the Imperial conditioning, which the yeah. news didn't even bring up, but Lynch hammered quite hard.
2: Yeah. So that was the third thing that I wanted to talk about was without introducing that Imperial conditioning, we don't get the layer about how kind of how dark, not only the Imperium is, but also the, Hark- the Harkonnens are because the way that they were able to switch Dr. Yue was kind of by leveraging that pain that he felt from having his wife be a slave to And they talked a little bit about how they, like, reconditioned him. And I think that just that's just another layer that we missed of UA. Like, the reason he betrayed the entire Atreides family was because he wanted to save his wife, who he knew very, there was a very good chance that she was already dead. And so he was kind of like, well, you know what, like, you know, it is what it is. And, and I'm a piece of shit. Like he, he continuously says that to himself. Like, I know I'm a piece of shit. I'm doing this for my wife who very well may be dead, but you know, this is the one thing that I can do to sort of get out of the situation. And then he's killed almost immediately after his betrayal, which I think is just really it's it's a well, really that great plot point yeah, yeah it's a really great plot point about how he's just almost immediately mm-hmm. dispatched by the baron and that was that was a good scene in the movie however i think it does feel a little bit rushed because we don't get those three pretty massive pieces of how unlikely it is that ua was the traitor
5: yeah
4: i mean all all valid points i yeah i think for me just that Bible scene. And that was shot because I follow this Twitter account that shows some deleted scenes. I don't know how they or images of deleted scenes. I don't know how they got their hands on them, but that was shot and was cut from the movie. I, they needed that for sure. Mm-hmm. But again, going back to me defending it, a huge strength of the film is how all these different people or classes of people are more or less explained Through showing, not telling. I love the exposition um, in the film. Like the Mentats, never even mentioned in the movie, but you get. I was about to bring that up.
1: That's another thing. That was another thing that that the Lynch hammered pretty bad was the or good was the the spice stains on the lips of the the Mentats have to consume a specific amount of spout spice in order to keep continuing as Mentats. And the men and why the men tats are even there. The, the idea, of the, the machine wars, is not even yeah. That's not uh, touched at all. right? It's not touched on at all. And I mean, I like what um, what was done as far as Thufur's eyes, like rolling up while he's doing yeah. the computation. Yes. I thought that was brilliant. That was that. Was I wanted really more
2: of that, brilliant. actually. Yeah, yeah.
1: But and and really, what I what I after you read the book, what I and mind you, the book was written in 1965. Uh, Thufur, to me is just a stand-in for Robert McNamara. You know, McNamara used to sit in the war room in Pearl Harbor and go over uh, uh, war games in the U.S. Army Air Force uh, on these bombers that they were sending to Japan and trying to whittle down the the number of bombers that were flying back because of the great distances. A lot of them said, well, I've got a cracked window. Uh, If I've got a cracked window after right after I launch, then I'm not going. I'm turning back because I'm not going to make it. 1800 miles there and 1800 miles back. Whereas, you know, if you're in a war room and if you're running war games, you don't give a shit about one plane. What, what you give a shit about is the 25,000 pounds of bombs that it's going to drop.
5: Mm-hmm. You,
1: you really don't care if you that plane's going to make it back or not. You, you need, you need those bombs to hit that target. And it's running, running those numbers. That was the same type of mindset that fought the war in Vietnam. We need a crossover point. We need certain amount of debt every week before we hit a crossover point. It's going to happen sometime late in 1968. And then once we do that, the war will be all down. That's who. That's how they're managing that. And here we have this this MENTAT effectively doing the same thing. So I saw him as a stand-in stand for McNamara. And to be honest, he was just as successful as McNamara. You know, everything Thufer computated for turned out wrong. Yeah. And he was so obsessed with finding this traitor, it really shows you the emphasis on Yui.
3: Mm-hmm. He was
1: obsessed with finding this, you know, there's got to be a Harkin spy on you somewhere. There's got to be someone who's telling them something. And when it's, and I don't even know at the end of the novel if Thufur is even aware that it was Yui. Because Thufur is taken into captivity and he's working for the Harkonnens. That's a good Gini question.
2: Bond. Yeah, I honestly he, I just reread the book, and I honestly couldn't tell you if he figures that out. He,
4: there's eventually a beat, a scene when they're all, yeah, you know, facing off against the emperor and uh, Fade, and where Re- Rebecca and yeah, Thufur have there have a moment. Yeah, okay. Thuf, they they have a moment, and he realizes, but of course it's too late because he's not getting the antidote anymore, and eventually dies. Yes. Yeah, doesn't
1: make it to Dune Messiah.
4: Right. But yeah, I, yeah, just as a fan of it, the, I think if they got into certain areas, uh, I think a lesser movie or other sci-fi movies really get bogged down with the exposition of explaining everything. And I, the reason a big strength of the movie for me, even though Dr. Yui isn't quite developed is full races, full pockets of people are explained visual metaphors, so you get with both Piter and Thufir doing the eye thing, it's like, okay, they're, they're computing, they're, they're you know doing a request for their masters, so that, that's all implied there. Uh, Duncan Idaho's ferocity, as well as the Harkonnen's values are completely explained in one scene when he, Duncan Idaho, slaughters a whole battalion of Harkonnens and then there's another band of Harkonnens by the Thopters, who who they abandon the Thopters because they don't want to face off against Duncan. So they, they're ruled by fear. So they have no loyalty to house Harkonnen. Whereas Atreides is the complete opposite. You get exactly their values just by whenever, you know, one chance Atreides, everyone joins in. Whenever someone approaches Duke Leto, the guards, they're, they're, Blade ready, I guess, like trigger happy to defend him. Like when Liat Kynes comes, you get, you have these little moments throughout the movie where I think, gosh, they, they just condensed 10 pages in a second. So that's, that's why I think that's what makes up for um, Dr. Yui, in my opinion.
1: And that was something that Lynch was not capable of doing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, and the, the two hour version is, is cut to pieces yeah actually i don't like the two-hour version because it's so truncated every scene is truncated because they're just trying to smush you know it's one of the glories of, of the abyss by james cameron is he drops the entire third act and he just ends on the second act mm-hmm. and if you look at the the uh the director's code of the abyss it goes on for another half hour i think it is and it, it makes a whole lot more sense but you know cameron wasn't going to sacrifice scenes for or the whole film, and I think that's what was going on. And why Lynch took his name off the three-hour version is befuddling to me. He could have had uh, a much more um, influential role if he had worked with De Laurentiis in creating the three-hour version. And I know that uh, he had problems with the opening message from the Princess Rulon, which I think is great, but he also had problems with uh, you know the, the artistry of we're just going to Sketch out images of the throne room and just show those images and have voiceover. There was obviously a better way to do that. I think it would have been better if you just asked Lynch to do that or asked Lynch to be involved. I know that after that experience, he was not very interested in doing anything with Dune. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it it would have served uh, him and his product and his art and his vision better if if he had been involved. So, a couple of other notes: casting. I generally like the cast. I've got problems with Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron. It's not that he isn't doesn't really? look lecherous, but yeah, I I didn't I had a problem with with that. The other thing was um, I'm willing to reserve judgment until I see part two, but I was not impressed with Zendaya. Does in, Does anyone know why she's famous?
4: She was a, a Disney star uh, and okay. a singer, as well as a you know a- actress and.
1: Okay. It it's, it seems to me and again this I know this was shot a long time ago and we're dealing with a delayed industry but it seems to me that she was cast because she's in Da.
5: Yeah.
1: And and she basically is a celebutan and whether or not she has any real talent I guess we'll find out. Mm-hmm. This is this was very difficult for me to say because I absolutely loved her in the Spider-Man films. Yeah. Same. But having seen her in this it just seems like and, and a lot of this is you know it's Denise's fault particularly and his editor's fault she's not very she's not in this film very much. She turns, she looks in the camera, she looks mysterious, and we move on. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot of acting, so I'm reserving my judgment just my my initial not very impressed, particularly it's going to be very hard to fill the the role of Sean Young, who's right very very striking. so those two did anyone have any other issues with uh, casting like Ryan?
0: It took me a while. I don't know if I would say I have a problem with s- Guard as the Baron, but throughout the first maybe hour and a half of the movie, the makeup I think was to, s- to such a degree so well done that I was like, who is that? <laughs> who that is. And usually I'm, I'm, I kind of, you know, Personally, and to myself, kind of pride myself on being able to figure out who people are. um It's kind of a fun game I play, but but that one kind of tricked me for a while. But once it hit me, I kind of was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." I mean, you know, I, I've been a fan of his in some of his
2: mama Mia."
5: a problem with it, I think, it just was more of a surprise to me. you mentioned it, I I want to know
3: more as to why, Dylan, you feel that way. not, but they, uh, from the point of time on film, and I think that we're, we're hopefully going to be convinced of her. But I think that she's, she's obviously there is kind of like a, She's there
5: for for a reason to to kind of suggest that the lead up to her involvement in the second piece is
0: going to be much more prominent. Thing to, you know, for a director to kind of grapple with, I think, is to introduce a character but not really introduce the character, just to kind of say this one's there and just wait for it and
3: trust me. A difficult thing to pull off, I think he did pull it off. The kind of a questioning or a disagreement as to you know why she's in the first movie in the first place or or why her development is is so limited so really have many critiques i i
0: admit that i'm flawed when i view movies as beautiful as as dune
5: and and it's hard for me to kind of not come out and say, Oh my God, that was amazing. Just off of spectacle alone. I have to watch it again. And, and probably the second time around, I'll say like, mm, I wonder why
0: they chose to do this. Or I might have a critique or two, but as it stands now, I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty hardcore fan.
1: Well, it's a very beautiful movie. Yeah, that's for sure. And it, it fits in with his oeuvre.
3: Hmm.
1: Definitely. That's for sure. Um, It'll win for best
0: cinematography. I mean, yeah. I mean, it has to. Yeah. It has to. I, I said the same thing about 2049 when it came out. I walked out of the theater, said that's going to win the Oscar for cinematography, and it did. And I, I just think he's got, uh, who is the cinematographer on this? Like
1: Greg Fraser. Yeah. Um, I was surprised it wasn't Roger Deakins, but it shows you how Roger Deakins Frank. is having just an enormous, just a grasp on the influence. And, yeah in filmmaking all over the world. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, it was kind of like when Fargo came out, <clears throat> I walked out and I thought, holy crap. I, I just could not believe uh, the cinematography in Fargo. And then within a, within two or three years, a lot of movies started looking like Fargo, mm-hmm. you know, just pulling back and um, you know, who's doing a lot of it, believe it or not, was Janusz Kamiski. You know, he was uh, Deakins was is just a, a big fan of just pulling the camera back and just showing you everything. And Comiskey started doing that. He started pulling it back and showing everything. He works a lot with Spielberg. And so as a consequence, a lot of Spielberg films after 2000, they look a lot like Fargo. Mm. This is very, very bizarre, but it is wonderful for Spielberg's uh, storytelling technique. I'll tell you that. But it's a credit to him because not too many old dogs will take new tricks, you know, but Spielberg is all about um, finding finding new ways to do things. Roger, Roger Deakins is is exceptional, but this, this guy obviously, um, and of course there's, there's, there's influence from the director as well. Yeah. Now, um, ending, ending the film on the duel. There's another problem I I had with it. I, you know, I thought that it was much more powerful to just cut to Paul and Jessica alone in the desert. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? How are we going to survive credits? Is that too much of a downer? So I was I was looking forward to opening part two with the duel. Just immediately you're introduced into danger. I am in a dangerous place. These people are dangerous, and we have to we have to move on. Thoughts?
4: Uh, yeah, two thoughts. First thought: I'm triggered. Um, second, <laughs> <laughs> um, canceled. Uh, no, I think the, the thought I genuinely had while watching the film and watching the duel, knowing that we're almost done with the runtime. I was like, people are going to hate this. I think the ending here, but for me as a book fan, I'm like book fans, I think, or at least me, I knew I was going to love it because it was a climax, not in the traditional sense of action, although there is action in the fight, but it's more of a climax of Character development. It's Paul's point of no return. So he's never killed someone, just as Lady Jessica says, he easily could have killed Jameis a few times, so much so that Stillgar thinks that he's toying with Jameis. But this is the whole time, the whole movie, Paul's having visions of his potential future. And he's been having visions of Jameis, which is a change from the book, which was something I was like, oh, are, is Jameis going to be in part two? Is he not going to die? So to, for him, to, Jameis to die, that was a big shock for me. I, was, I had no idea what to expect um, as, you know, knowing the story of the book and then having Jameis die after all. I think, that-
2: I think he does have visions of Jameis in the book.
4: Oh, oh, does he? Because
2: he, yeah, because he thinks that Jameis is going to be a part of his life. I, and then,
4: I, I was under the impression that it was there's much more in the movie.
2: I could
1: be wrong, I but I think I knew- don't. Re- yeah, I don't remember the beginning of the book. I, I remember in the book that he was having visions of this girl in a desert, and he didn't know who that they were. So when I saw that in the film, I was really encouraged. Yeah, because it's it's not in a Lynch film, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, it it shows. Um, and particularly Paul's reaction to the spice, I thought was brilliant. Yeah, well, it was very well handled. Very, well, but the the visions of uh, Jamis was was really confusing because you knew that they weren't going to um, really see each other all that much after the tool, mm-hmm. and you knew that that was coming. So I was that just was just confusing. I think and it was confusing to a lot of other viewers, like my wife as well.
2: I think the visions of Jamis in the book go to show that Paul isn't necessarily seeing the future that will happen. I think it. He if he's taking it in as like one route that the future could go, and then when he kills Jameis, he has this thought of like, "Oh, see, this is why I have to be careful careful with my visions because I thought he was going to be a part of my life."
4: Right. That's can- that's what I think for the movie was doing. I I do not remember visions of Jameis uh, I, in the
1: book. I think it happens in the book I well, that's I, a good. That's a good point, Laura, because he says to. Uh, the Reverend Mother in the Joan Gabar scene in the beginning. Uh, she asked him specifically, do all your visions come true? And he says, well, not always, and not the right ways. Mm-hmm. So that's right. a good point.
4: So, yeah, I thought it's a great, great setup, an interesting place to end, but I, I really loved it from a character point. And yes, yeah, it's po- point of no return. He's now part of the Fremen. Um, I definitely liked it, but I could see how other moviegoers would find it awkward uh, to end there. But of course, the final scene when they're walking along the desert and they see, you know, a brief glimpse of a Fremen on the sandworm and they say desert hour with Hans Zimmer's score, I'm just like, this is is this the best movie I've ever seen? So many <laughs> so many Denis Villeneuve's films f- about Four or five of his films are in my top 100 list. And, uh, you know, Sicario and Arrival are in my top 10. But so many times when you watch it, Christopher Nolan kind of has gotten away from this. But Denis does blend the spectacle with, you know, the character development, the emotion, what you you need. You can't just have pure spectacle. That's, that's kind of a big problem I had with Tenet, which was that it was mostly spectacle and I couldn't really grasp at certain points what characters were thinking or, or wanting. But yeah, it's just Denis just, I, I just when he wrote at, at the end there, that final scene, I'm like, yeah, this is, this, this is everything for me. This is, can I marry this movie? Google, can well, I marry a movie?
1: I would like to point out, not to be too critical of myself, but there are 489 pages in the novel uh, that do not include the enormous appendices and vocabulary, mm-hmm. and he meets Johnny on page two eighty five. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's almost sixty percent of the way. I don't want to be too too harsh.
4: Yeah, I will say that the marketing campaign went way too hard on Zendaya and set a false expectation. That I will agree with. Not the movie's fault. That's the marketing's fault. However, yeah. it it is kind of natural for the story because. Paul continuously has visions of of Chani. So he knows her, what she looks like and vaguely how she uh, acts. So the whole time in that first half, you're just, it's just set up, set up, set up, set up. You're like, when are we going to meet her? When are we going to meet her? When are we going to meet her? And I think that very much is mirrored in the film. It's like all the setup. And then at the very end, you meet, you meet her and, it's, since it's a two-parter, we're just going to have to wait for the payoff there. But yeah, I didn't have a problem with, with Zendaya's performance. Like we've alluded to, she's not um, in it a lot. But I think she's a talented actress. I'd uh, recommend Euphoria on HBO Max. Um, uh, not the greatest show, but she is a standout. She's the lead and she won an Emmy for her performance. So I'd recommend that show.
1: Okay, the last paragraph of Dune, on page 49. Do you know so little of my son, Jessica whispered. See that princess standing there, so haughty and confident. They say she has pretensions of a literary nature. Let us hope she finds solace in such things. She'll have little else. A bitter laugh escaped Jessica. Think on it, Johnny. That princess will have the name, yet she'll live as less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from the man to whom she's bound, while we, Chani, we who carry the name of concubine, history will call us wives. So after that, and I turn the page and I find, oh, shit, that's the end of the book. That's when I was like, well... That was the literary equivalent of a (laughs) mic drop. That was, that was Frank Herbert basically saying after 489 pages, I pulled the rug under from you because really what matters in this story are the women. Yeah.
2: So Dylan, you want to know? So, yeah. So I, I just finished the book again yesterday and after rereading that, My first thought was this is exactly how Hamilton ends, because the whole time we think that the musical Hamilton, and I read the book, I'm sure now, it's also fantastic, but you think that the book and the musical are about Hamilton and Aaron Burr, but what they're really about is how the women behind them are the ones who documented their lives and is the reason that we can have these conversations about these interesting Founding fathers. And the whole point of that show, I think, is not only to focus on the lost history of those figures, but to also remind everybody that the women are the ones who are continuously forgotten even further because they're not talked about and they're not documented because they were documenting things for other people. But they're not, you know, useless characters in the lives of these people. So the fact that Dune ended on that actually shot it up a lot in my respect, I guess, because I was like, hell yeah, like the reason we have all of the Princess Irulan writings is because she was there documenting those things. And that, ma- that made it really special, I think, at the end. I don't know how I missed that the last time that I read the book, but I think it had just completely lost me in how labyrinthine it is. And this time I was a lot more focused because of the movie. Um, I feel like I could kind of visualize things a little bit better and so things were sticking and then by the end I was just like all right like I'm here for the book again I'm like I'm refocused I like this a lot better than the first time I read it
1: (laughs) excellent excellent I felt the same way I felt like I could read anything that Princess Arulan wrote
2: yes it's really interesting and honestly those were my favorite parts the first time that I read the book because I think that something that Dune is trying to say Something that I actually think is really impressive about it is the thousands and thousands of years of history that have not only come before it, but you also know Frank Hubert and his son kind of tried to document after the the original trilogy. And that's something that's really hard to do, even in a history book. It's hard to cover. Isn't the rise and fall of the Roman Empire that that's like that can take someone years to read all those volumes? Like, it's really hard to document history, even a couple hundred years worth of history. Even, like I just talked about Hamilton, like that's a 600 page book about <laughs> Alexander Hamilton and it loses people sometimes. But Dune is about thousands of years of like, you know, preparing for something to happen. But not only that, it's preparing for something to fail. And like, what's the next step past that? So that's a really interesting thing that Dune does. It's like, of history condensed in this book, the Princess this through and picks out the important things to focus on and sort of use as text to teach people thousands of years in the future. That's really interesting to me.
1: I found uh, the chapter introductions by the Princess Arula, and I found those so influential, actually, that in my second book, I actually kind of copied that and to to throw some light on what was going on with my main character. Just a shameless copy invention. Um, No,
2: that's smart.
1: (laughs) Herbert's son has actually now written more books than his father has. And I've read a couple of them, uh, the Machine War and so forth. And the big one is the Sisterhood of Dune, which is about uh, the founding of the Bene Gesserit. I haven't dove that deep into it, but they're way more entertaining than, say, the last three or four Dune books that, that Herbert wrote. Now- uh, regarding
3: the sequel, has anyone read Dune Messiah?
1: No, I had. Um, yeah, you have. Yeah, and I got to say, it was probably the best sequel I've, I've ever read. It has to be in my Rushmore of best sequels, literary sequels. Did, did it have that impact on you?
4: Um, thematically rich, yes, and from a philosophical point. And the themes I really enjoyed and appreciated. It's very rich, and that's a plus of the original six books that Frank Herbert wrote. However, I think I didn't enjoy it in the traditional sense. I enjoyed the philosophy lesson, but... I didn't enjoy it from a narrative standpoint, just because, I mean, by design, it's not supposed to be enjoyable. The whole message is that being the ruler sucks. And, um, and you know, it's about a genocide and about how, you know, the failings of Paul uh, amidst his triumph. So, yeah, I, I have a weird relationship with it. I think I predict that Denis Villeneuve is going to make the sequel. You know, he's, he is making it but I don't think there he has talks of a trilogy. I actually don't think that's going to happen just because I, I don't know how they would depict that book a, adapt it, because it's not a traditional story. It's just a big kind of lesson about how being a leader sucks and it's a huge downer. Uh, yeah. I, I, uh, you hear, hearing it now folks and putting money down that, <laughs> Denis Villeneuve will only make two, two Dune movies.
1: Well, that's a shame because the Dune Messiah and, and Children of Dune were rolled into one right TV show. Yeah, and it it was it was absolutely horrible, like you say. I think they got Susan Sarandon to play the the, the Reverend Mother, mm-hmm. Lady Jessica. Yep, Love her. yeah. And um, the Lado the Second, right. Right, yeah. and however, I'm a huge fan of that second book because uh, although you're right, that's what's going on 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 the face. And Laura, have you read it by chance? I haven't. Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna have to read it and let me know if I'm if I'm picking up what what Herbert was put, putting down because I caught something else going on by the time it was over, and and Danny can share with you the ending if if he so chooses. But by its by the time it's over, it was it was like a very highly engineered Steven Soderbergh script. Everything that was going on was deliberately set forward into play and manipulated by the Harkonnens to make Paul do certain things, go certain places, and and find out certain things to put him into a a specific place at a specific time of their choosing. Hmm. The entire book is a setup. And you don't find that out until the last page. And then the novel ends. Interesting. <laughs> and I, I was really blown away by that. And then in children of Dune was a, a bit of a letdown, um, but it, it has its charm as well. I'm hoping for a part three, which will be Dune Messiah. And if he wants to end it there, fine. Uh, children of Dune does not necessarily end on an up note, but it's way more of an up note than Dune Messiah. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Okay.
1: You know, so I, if if he, if he wants to end the series on an up note, I would recommend doing Children of Dune and maybe just pepping it up a bit. You know, that, that coronation scene at the end of Lynch's film, where the, the House of Atreides is there intermingled with the Fremen. And there's this amazing score by Toto just blasting at you. And they bring the coat and they put it around Paul's shoulders. And the angels are singing. And, Alicia, and Aaliyah is there, his daughter, his little sister. And you know that at some point Aaliyah is going to take over as the theocratic dictator of Arrakis. You know, that, that, that was a really powerful scene. It really was. It, it must have been what the kings of France felt after their coronation.
2: <laughs> you know. Yeah.
1: I, I thought it was spectacular.
2: Nice. All right.
1: Are, are we ready for the Rushmore run? Let's yes. do it. All right. Ryan. Top five or ish four or five books you've ever read. All right, in, in no particular order. In no particular. We're not talking about a one, two, three, four. We're not going to okay, use the word
5: it's, best. It's too hard. Uh, it's too hard across
3: mediums too. Let's see the world according to Garp by John Irving.
5: Incredible. I, I saw the Robin Williams film uh, a
0: long time ago. I don't really remember it, so I can't really speak to it, but. That's a fantastic book, and I say in conjunction with that, "Cider House Rules" by John Irving is is absolutely incredible. I'm a huge Chuck Palahniuk fan,
5: favorite author. I can't deny the impact that "Fight
3: Club" had on me when I was, I think, 19 or 20. By John Krakauer, you know, documenting the Everest disaster in the 90s.
5: Either a movie or a docu series. Uh, John Krakauer is is an amazing
0: storyteller um, and documentarian. You know, Into the Wild is, is
5: is wonderful as well. The Martian, I thought, you know, as a as a comedic sci fi, you know, thriller, really, uh, was wonderfully written. And I'm giving follow-ups to these because there's there's
0: authors that have multiple books that I can't really choose from. And Artemis, one of his more recent novels, is great too. And then and then Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Those would
3: be, I think, I think my top five top five books. Okay, Laura,
2: Ryan, we're gonna have to talk about John Irving sometime because A Prayer for Owen Meany is close one of my top five books. That's that's one with a really good payoff and a lot of setup, <laughs> but for a very fun payoff in the very end. But so no particular order, but my first one on the list is Les Mis I adore that book. Speaking of history and historical tomes, oh my god. I love that book. I love that musical. Um the second one is a book from my childhood. It's a YA book, but it's called From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. It's, yeah, I know it's a really long title, but it's an absolutely delightful, quick read. There's a an audiobook of it that sometimes I honestly just throw on. I think it's like eight hours. I just listen to it in one day during work. It's really, really fun. Third one is eleven twenty two sixty three. Another super long book, but I just I can't get enough of that story. It's so good. The fourth on the list is one that I actually just read and I couldn't put down. But girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh my god, perfect in my opinion. <laughs> I think I read it in two days because I just I honestly couldn't put it down. And my fifth one because it scared me so much when I read it, when I was going to school in the Midwest is in cold blood. Oh my God. (laughs) Just thrilling. So yeah, I think those are my, those are some of my top fives. Nice.
4: Mm -hmm. Danny. That's great. Yeah. Um, I'm a big Kurt Vonnegut guy. I was introduced to him in college. Actually. I hadn't read any of his books before then. So slaughterhouse five is, is most Famous one, arguably. Um, And then also Cat's Cradle, which they've been trying to turn into a movie for decades. I don't think it'll ever happen. It's not really a, a traditional narrative, but haunting book allegory for nuclear weapons. And then I don't normally like short story books, but a Kurt Bonnegut short story book is Welcome to the Monkey House. And I did a report in college on uh, the uh, Euphoria question, which is a short story in there. It blew my mind. So yeah, Welcome to the Monkey House, a great compendium of his stories. Pillars of the Earth, which is my brother Tim's favorite book. He recommended that to me, and I'm not a big reader until this podcast, but I read that 1,000-page book pretty quickly. Call it Courage, which is a kid's book. But I remember reading that in third grade, and it had just made such a huge impression on me. I love it. dune, of course, dune is my favorite book, but we've already talked about that a bunch and then finally, I guess not finally damn I have two more eleven twenty two sixty three I'll echo uh what Laura said about that, and then finally, my favorite book that I've covered on the pod next to dune and eleven twenty two sixty three rosemary's baby wow it's exactly beat for beat the movie exactly uh, we talked about that but yeah, it, amazing tense from the opening sentence to the the last scene so yeah that's
1: very much more
2: and dylan do you have a top five
1: i do uh, before i get to to that i wanted to go back to uh ryan since you say you're a huge Blanc fan. I read Fight Club too after I saw the film because I think the film is I mean the film is in my Rushmore films for sure. I really enjoyed the book. Uh have you read Pygmy?
5: I read Pygmy about five or six years ago. Um I've got my copy in, in my my uh my
3: bedroom. Um it's you, if you if you go into it as a
0: satire, I think it's easier to digest. If you don't, if you don't, and if you don't understand, you know, kind of Palahniuk's. You don't have to understand his life, but you need to understand his influences and where he has,
5: you know, come to be compelled to generate the ideas that he has. Yeah, you know, I think I made the statement couple of weeks ago that he is the, you know, the author that best expresses the maybe philosophical seedy underbelly of American culture.
0: I I just, the kind of the phrase just kind of came to me when I was driving the car a couple of weeks ago, but pygmy, if you understand it as a satire and for what it's supposed to be
5: is a wonderfully dark comedic book. But if you don't, because it took me a while to
0: kind of understand that if you don't, you're like, I cannot believe that somebody has written this and that it's a book like this is immeasurably offensive. And and awful, but once you realize kind of the angle, it changes the perspective of the book. I don't know if you felt the same way, but it's one of his one of his better works.
1: I just can't believe he got away with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's the book is shocking and. There's There's been a few people that that have done the same thing. I was thinking of Anthony Burgess when he wrote A Clockwork Orange. You know, yeah. the entire book is written in dialect. And uh, Stephen King did the same thing with um, Dolores Claiborne where he introduced like a, a, a main country accent. And he wrote the entire book in that accent. Uh, no chapters, no paragraphs. Um, I don't think there's any indentions into it. It's just train spotting
2: is very similar to
1: yes, it is yeah, absolutely, yeah, even um that's Irvine Welsh, if I remember correctly, and even Welsh's descriptive paragraphs, which are the narrative he's trying to tell her in that dialogue, yeah Polanik was doing doing that with pygmy from an adult who looks like a child, so he's inserted into this capitalist host family coming from a uh, what we assume to be a country kind of like Albania that's been brainwashed by communism for for half a century and the redacted nature of all of it and how he was looking at American institutions and things that we take for granted was very – it reminded me of this essay I saw in college called um, – Rituals of the Nasarima, where it was describing what what the Nasarima Native Americans were doing every every morning when they woke up, and it was this very bizarrely written case study, anthropological study. And you were just thinking, man, these Nasarima are just the weirdest people I've ever read. But in fact, the entire thing is fake. If you read Nasarima backwards, it's Americans, and it was describing what Americans do in the bathroom to prep before they they go to work, brushing your hair with your teeth with hog's hair and. Things, things of that nature. It was meant to spot like that. Uh, I thought Pygmy was fantastic. Laura?
3: <laughs> yes. You have
1: my undying admiration for finishing Les Mis.
2: I, You know what? I finished it twice. <laughs>
1: Whoa.
2: I really I really like it, although I will admit some of the historical chapters, I just kind of skim. <laughs>
1: Steve Larson, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, this is one of those situations where that book came out right about the time. I was working in the oil patch at the time, and I became kind of like that guy, and I don't remember who wrote that book, Up in the Air. That guy who went through so many airports, he stopped recognizing the airports, and he went through so many cities, he stopped recognizing the cities, and just everything was was the same to him. I got to that point where I had a million miles on United or Continental, and uh, I could go through any airport in the world. It didn't matter if I knew the language or not. And I reached that status. And if you really want to know what people are reading, don't look at the New York Times bestseller list. See what people are buying and reading in the airplanes. And I saw Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, so I picked it up and I read it on an international flight. And I thought, wow. And then I found out, of course, there was a second one and a third one. And then the Larson story behind it just makes yeah. it all that much more mysterious and so forth. And
3: yeah.
1: I've also thought about writing under a pseudonym and just saying on the back of the book, and he died in 2005, <laughs> this is all we have left. And just seeing if I could corner the market that way. Uh, my wife doesn't like that joke. <laughs> um, Girl, the dragon tattoo, I, I thought it was interesting because you, you finally had a male talking about misogyny in literature And I'm sure I'm sure there were people before that, but I don't know if those people made the bestseller list.
2: Yeah, there were so many interesting. I mean, just the the pages that separated the different parts of the book with the statistics of how many women are sexually assaulted in Sweden. Gosh, yeah. I mean, even I mean, it's not even really part of the story, but it's it is part of the story. Like, that's the foundation for why the entire story is able to happen
1: did you see the swedish films
2: no i we are going to cover it for the podcast like i said we wanted to do a christmas episode so i read it i haven't seen around any...
4: we're not doing it on christmas now yeah, like christmasy
2: christmasy christmas. story because yeah, it happens it. it
4: was marketed as the feel bad movie of christmas yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. so, so
4: expression here was classic when he said that. I mean, that's no me
0: rap based, right that, yeah that's right yeah yeah oh my god uh, yeah it's it's I, I give it a 9 or a 10 out of 10. I mean it's one of my favorite. I I didn't have it on my movies list but it's one of my favorite movies. It's incredible. It's brutal but it's incredible. she's one of my favorite actors too. I think she everything she touches turns to gold.
1: You Naomi know Rapaz? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that I I really like that first movie and the and the second movie as well. Uh, the third one I think tails off uh, quite a bit unfortunately. The guy who plays, what is the, Bloomkist, the investigator, the journalist? Blomkist, yeah. Blom, yeah. The guy who plays him is not ideal, I'll say. Daniel Craig is a much better, because he's supposed to be this ladies' man. Yeah. And the, I don't think the actor really did a very good job of, of conveying that. And there are some scenes, particularly, I remember the, when they're driving to like the Vanger compound, and he just has like this blank expression on his face. Like he's looking at a taco or something. It didn't, didn't print out very well. When you, when you run over something like that with a master like David Fincher, it's obviously just going to be crazy. But one thing I didn't understand about the Fincher version, it's actually quite frankly pissed me off. You guys seen the Fincher version?
2: No, I haven't seen any uh, of the movie adaptations, no.
1: Okay, well, you know how to book in, so I'm not going to – there's no spoiling that. But the, the end of the book actually takes place in Australia. Yeah. where he goes to Australia and he can, and he finds Harriet and he reveals her to us, the audience. So in, in the film, the same thing is done, but it's done in London. Lungfist flies to London and then unveils. This is Harriet does not have the same dramatic impact. Now, in terms of cost and budget, like really, this is David Fincher. This is a Warner brothers film how much the fuck is it going to cost to fly everybody out to the California desert to film 15 minutes or less? I mean, I, you know, I know Fincher is expensive, but the fact that they wouldn't splurge for that is just mind boggling to me. I, I did not understand it at all. Right. And, and really it really detracted from the ending. Like the film was ending and I wasn't there. I was off thinking about um, Harriet lives in Australia in cold blood, genius. No, no truck with that. I read Capote when I was in high school, after I saw the movie, found out there was a book. I was unprepared in reading Capote. Capote is, is absolutely yeah. stellar. You know, after you read yeah. a bunch of shit and you read Capote, you feel stupid. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, him and, and Harper Lee, Harper Lee is, is great in conveying emotion.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, my Rushmore in lit, obviously I already mentioned Dune. So, no reason to go through that. But my favorite book by far is, is The Razor's Edge by W. Summers at Magum. I thought that was amazing. Youth and Revolt uh, by C.D. Payne. Um, Danny, I see you nodding. Do you I've, know that one? I've seen the film. If it's oh, I'm say. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I haven't read it. No. Yeah, it's uh, it's about a kid who gl- grows up in Oakland, of all places. And the film is funny, but it it really does not capture the again six hundred pages. How do you get that down to two hours? And it just goes on. There's two more books, and it is it's a page turner, of course. But there's like a major joke on every page, right? And it's very um, it's very much like how guys think at the age of thirteen, fourteen, <laughs> forever, really. And and it doesn't paint us in particularly good light, and that's fine. The Reader by Bernard Schink was, was amazing uh, about finding out the people uh, that you love may not be the people who they you think they are. Uh, love in the Time of Cholera.
2: Never read that, actually.
1: Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He, I mean, he is a communist. Died in the wool, but he's that in 100 Years of Solitude. Awesome books. But since... Since Danny mentioned Slaughterhouse-Five, I got to ask, have you read Mother Night?
4: I have not. That's my Vonnegut blind spot.
1: I think, sir, that you'll be greatly served if you take the time to, to take that on. I read it when I was in college. It's only like 150 pages or something. It's actually quite short. It's very, very satirical. I don't know why it's. I read Slaughterhouse 5. I I was not on that bus. I missed that bus. Mm-hmm. A lot of people worship that book, yeah. I I just didn't get it. Kind of like What's the big one by Salinger? Catcher in the Rye. Mm. I missed that bus too. I I I understand what people are saying about it, but I didn't I didn't get it. So I'm sorry I'm not in the in the Slaughterhouse 5 fan house. However, Mother Night I think has replaced it for me. I totally get Mother Night. Gotcha. Cool. I, I I totally get good people who do bad things, hoping that good will come out of it. Yeah. That that is an instantly human flaw, and and then having no excuse. Why did you do those bad things? And having to cop to it and say, "Well, I did those bad things because I thought something good would come from it." Even if something good did come from it, you still did something bad. Right. Very bad. And you really have to ask yourself, is there such a thing as a good Nazi? Right. That's that's a fundamental question. And and, and it's not just Vonnegut saying that about Nazis, it's Vonnegut saying that about everybody. And uh, with some some great punchlines in between. And Keith Gordon, who is an actor, he's probably most famously known as being in Christine the John Carpenter film of the Stephen King book. Mm-hmm. And then he was, he was in Jaws two and a couple other things. Uh, he's doing some episodes on Hawaii five Oh, I think recently he's a director. He directed uh, midnight clear with Gary Sinise uh, that, that got some traction about 20 years ago, but he also uh, directed mother night and he got Nick Nolte to play the lead role. Mm-hmm. And I thought the book did um, as good as a job as it could. Yeah, Uh, to get into it. And if you want to see a breakdown of of Mother Night um, or if you want to hear a podcast on the breakdown, I recommend The Projection Booth. They did an episode on it. And Mike White of The Projection Booth, he got Keith Gordon to come on to the show and talk about it as director. cool. I was was pretty shocked. Yeah, I definitely looked that up. All right. So we're going to wind up some thoughts on Akira, on books, on film. Ryan? Final thoughts? What should we read?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, what first comes to mind, I just started the three body problem by Chicks and Lou.
5: I think that that might be a good recommendation for a narrative
0: that is comparable to kind of the science fiction dystopian,
3: you know, mankind's battle for. Maybe seeking What is behind
5: life or the meaning of life, so there's some evolutionary
0: themes very heavily present in the manga for Akira that are kind of touched upon in the film. Um, but from what I gather with the three body problem it's there's there's similar um, at least on the surface, I'm not very far into it, but there's similar. Ideas of play.
3: Um, So that might be a good parallel to dive into.
0: That's that's my, my recommendation off the top of my head.
1: What's your favorite podcast? No pandering. Favorite podcast? God,
5: there's so many. I really like this podcast. Called
0: Radio Rental, which is underneath the umbrella of Payne Lindsay, who did Up and Vanished about the um, disappearance of a Georgia Miss Georgia. I think I can't remember her name, but it's a wonderfully done docu series. Radio Rentals is kind of it, it's kind of the. Who's the actor that plays Dwight in the office? Oh, Rain Wilson. Rain Wilson plays a character that introduces these, you know, stories of, of you know, supernatural encounters that people have had. So these, you know, anybody will write in and say, I've got a scary story that happened to me. And they'll give, be given a spot on the podcast to tell it. And it's
5: done with creepy music. But it, I would guess it's coming off the coattails of Halloween. That might be at the front of my mind. Yeah, it's just it's just a fun podcast with great storytelling. I, I think you can't go wrong
4: with it.
1: Danny, what should we be reading? Kind of
4: going in the sci-fi dystopian trend, uh, taking inspiration from Akira. Um, we're watching the show Foundation, based off based off of Isaac Asimov's uh, novel and, and novels. I would recommend the novels. The show um isn't great unfortunately but you know especially foundation the novel that's you know seminal sci-fi literature and also in concurrently with our podcast i'm reading books that we're not covering uh, by stephen graham jones we talked a lot about diversity and he's a native american writer he writes horror stories both about native americans but also just about Uh, other characters, other races as well. So the books by Stephen Graham Jones, I recommend The Only Good Indians. It's terrifying, darkly funny, uh, and perverse. So,
1: yeah, that's my rec. What podcast should we be listening to? My
4: podcast recommendation for y'all is Beyond the Screenplay, uh, where they – it's kind of like our podcast a little bit where they discuss – how the script changed from book to movie, but they also just discuss other movies, not based on material. And they they talk specifically about the decisions made in the screenplay, how that influences the movie for the better or the worse, how stories are told. It's a really solid movie review podcast.
1: Laura, I didn't choose you last because you're a female, but I wanted the female to have the last word.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: She was going to cancel you. (laughs) (laughs) quick.
2: please. (laughs) What Um, should we be reading? So the first, I was going to say one more thing before I say what we should be reading, but I wanted to give a shout out to the new um, Academy Award Museum that just opened in Hollywood Danny and I went a couple weekends ago with our families and they have an Akira exhibit, which includes three original cells that were shot in the movie. And I about lost my shit. I was freaking out. And we took pictures and sent them to Ryan. And we were like, oh my God, you have to come to LA. So if you have an opportunity to come and check out that was it's fabulous it. don't just have akira stuff with their anime section they've got Miyazaki hills and paintings and his original animated animation desk incredible so highly recommend going there and if you're interested in akira specifically they have cells there so check it out um gosh as far as Reading goes, I feel like I've been pretty married to the podcast, upcoming podcast episodes. But so I'm kind of going through a blank right now. We just read some of Clive Barker's short stories from The Forbidden, and we're going to cover Candyman spoilers on our podcast. And I think some of those stories were. Very different. I really like a good thriller and a good horror story that surprises me because there are so many tropes out there. In fact, I just read Dracula and sometimes it's fun to go back. I've never read that story, but sometimes it's fun to go back and see where the tropes come from, because obviously a lot was inspired by that book. So I've read so many thrillers and crime novels and horror stories that if something can scare me or creep me out or make me some- think of something in a different way, then I like that a lot. So the forbidden
4: or, yeah, b- collection books of blood. Books and- of blood. Yeah. The
2: forbidden is a story and yeah. blood, but so those have been good. Uh, I would say that it's probably not a huge surprise that I'm a fan of crooked media um I like a lot of the podcasts that they put out cuz I'm a you know a bleeding heart liberal I guess. What? <laughs> um, um so I really enjoy the short series that they have going called This Land. It discusses two um very topical issues going on in the Supreme Court with uh that have to do with Native Americans and their land rights but also their um their rights over their children. So it's really interesting because I don't think that I had learned a lot about um, like the legal rights of native Americans going through my, you know, education. (laughs) So it's really informative, really, really well produced.
1: Thanks very much, everybody, for, for coming on the super 70 podcast. And I really appreciate
2: it. Thank you so much, Dylan. This is, absolutely so much fun i love talking about media
1: yeah what it's about books
2: movies podcasts
1: (laughs) this is an
4: honor yeah and especially because we love our podcast but we're limited to one topic so to just come and completely just nerd out about different properties is a blast drink come true so thank you
0: absolutely i I second that sentiment it's been an honor to be a part of part of these past two collaborations and a lot of fun. Um, and has has really kind of tapped into a creative aspect of my life that I haven't really had much you know, direction and pursuing. So this is a big treat for me and I really appreciate, you know, Dan and Laura for allowing me on their podcast to do Akira. And it's been wonderful that, you know, these two episodes have been born out of it. So Dylan, it's an honor to be on your your show as well. So thank you.
1: Thanks, I'm gonna put that at the top before we even play the music. Thanks for hanging out with me and the Film Is Lit Podcast. You can find them wherever you find podcasts. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www dot <laughs> Mm-hmm